Flyover Politic Podcast, the show for normal Americans. From this undisclosed bunker, here's your host, Tony Reed. This, this sounds like that Dr. Burks is totally disagreeing with the governor of Georgia. She was uh, disagreeing uh, as politely as she could, I think. I understand the need uh, to kind of be correct here and not be, you know, attack people, etc. But I think when people are looking for straight answers from the medical community, she was uh, trying to be creative, right, as you put it. And I think that an answer would have been, look, if I were uh, the governor of that state, I'm not so sure I would do this. I think it, it, does, ha- it does have to be said uh, at this point that the president appears to be giving the green light to these protesters uh, who are at these demonstrations outside state houses around the country. Uh, the president was absolutely just gaslighting uh, people there uh, in, in the briefing room just a few moments ago, Wolf, when he said that these protesters are practicing social distancing. They're just not. Uh, the president you know, said a week ago when they released these new guidelines that if he saw any governor who was doing something that he disagreed with, that he would come down hard on that governor. Uh, that is not happening with these governors who are racing ahead of the administration's guidelines and opening up quickly like Governor Kemp is in Georgia. And so it, it appears that, you know, when the president is going to sound off on these governors, it's when they're not opening up quickly enough. Uh, and, you know, and, and just to add to that, when the president is sending out protesters to these state houses to demonstrate against social distancing, uh, that is putting pressure on those state houses. That's putting pressure on those governments. And welcome back to Flower Politic Podcast. It's the 23rd of April, year of our Lord 2020. I am Tony Reed. This is my bunker. And I had enough material. I want to keep the podcast down. So we're just going to do a political podcast today. Keep it short. And then Monday we'll do a either a full-blown or most likely just a news and social media nuggets and have a little fun for the day. But as you see on the intro a couple weeks ago, Brinks or Burks or Dr. Whatever the fuck. He was the Mac Daddy. He was going to get Trump. And that's what we wanted. We, you know, he was saying the truth about Trump and Trump's a piece of shit and da 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 da. It's such a goddamn feeding frenzy right now in our media that now they're going after him and dogging him because he won't join. This new fucking movement, which is we never open up again. Just forever. Forever we're going to be in lockdown. Because I'm seeing it on social media. I'm seeing it on Facebook. I see it everywhere. It is this new movement by progressives that you're going to get people killed if you open things back up. We need to forever. Ever, 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 ever just stay in lockdown, just hide in your house, and never go back to work, never have an economy, because 
the people over in fucking New York City can't get their shit together. Now, either their numbers are full of shit, which there's part of that. I mean, the official site now is saying New Jersey, New York, and Wyoming are listing probable death because they jumped so big that, you know, even the CDC said, oh, what the fuck? What the fuck over? Because they're not even doing tests. They're just saying they're dead. We've covered it on the show. But the numbers, once we said we were going to open up, and I know, there's a delay three or four days per test to get results. <clears throat> they blew up. They just blew the fuck up. And that makes me think, once again, are you full of shit? Every time we've done a pivot within this virus, we have... As we'll see in this podcast, hydrochloroquine's a killer. This is that. They just can't ever just let it go. I can't even get the numbers up uh, today. The site is down. But understand, last night, New York City alone, and I once again want to say the South, because that's what they were playing back there. New York City alone has 246,000 cases. 246,000 cases. You could, and if you go to the, the tracker for, uh, movement and everybody in the southern states are red and we're all fucking F's and we suck. Even if you try to add them all up, we, we can't make, we, we can't fucking make what New York has and New Jersey. New Jersey almost had 100,000, and New York has 246,000. New York City alone has half of America's deaths. But Cuomo's the shit. Um, they're, They're the standard. We all need to be like them because they're so fucking good. I mean, they have done everything right, and Trump's done everything wrong, and red states are the devil. Um, I, I I don't know how you can sit anymore and say, hey, this is what we need to do, when it, it appears not to be working. I mean, if you have 246,000 fucking cases, you clearly didn't fucking social distance, because it never stops. They had 5,400 overnight last night. That's what the numbers said. What did you do? Did you all go to Chinatown? So, because this podcast was so long with with a new long soundbite, a 20-minute soundbite we'll hear today, of just literally people saying Trump is killing people, and we had the hypocrisy of the Chris Cuomo show, I had to go early, so with no more, with further ado, as the words goes, here is just the media losing their shit or anybody not wanting to stay in lockdown forever. It'll start with Don Lemon. If you want to live, you stay home. 
Today, we lost another 2,500 Americans to this virus. And the idea that we are definitively past the peak, that it's time to sort of move on, the virus cannot get even worse once we venture back out, it, it's just not supported by the available evidence. Just today, we saw the biggest jump in coronavirus cases since April 10th. The COVID tracking project, which has been assembling this data and, and publishing it for all the U.S. states and territories, said coronavirus deaths rose to a new single-day high in their data set today. The director of the Centers for Disease Control himself warned the second wave of coronavirus this winter will likely be worse. Telling the Washington Post, when I said this to others, they kind of put their head back. They do not understand what I mean. But here's the thing. The Trump administration's own plan, the one that they released to great fanfare, their own plan for states to begin to quote unquote reopen requires a state to have a, and I'm quoting here, downward trajectory of documented cases within a 14 day period, as well as robust testing program in place for at risk healthcare workers, including emerging antibody testing. Now, those are in fact quite sensible recommendations. And they are in phase one of the administration's reopening plan. But it is not clear that any of the states that announced they are reopening meet those Trump administration guidelines. Look at the state of Georgia, which is about to reopen a wide range of businesses under Republican Governor Brian Kemp. The state will allow the reopening of businesses including hair salons, gyms, bowling alleys, nail salons, and massage therapy centers on Friday followed by restaurants, private social clubs, and movie theaters on Monday. If that sounds insane to you, you're not alone. And for the record, Georgia does not meet the White House guidelines. It does not have a 14-day trajectory of declining cases. It has tested less than 90,000 people out of a population of more than 10 million. Mayors in Georgia are describing the governor's decision as reckless, dangerous, and illogical. Stacey Abrams, who was the governor's Democratic opponent in that 2018 gubernatorial election, hotly contested, says the decision could cost lives. We're the eighth largest state in the nation, but we have the 14th highest infection rate and the seventh slowest testing rate. What that means is that these jobs that are reopening, these businesses that are reopening, are going to force frontline workers back to the work without having been tested, without having access to a health care system to help them if they are in need. The worry is that by trying to push a false opening of the economy, we risk putting more lives in danger. So uh, we just got the guidelines in from Georgia for the Georgia Board of Cosmetology and Barbers. I'm going I'm, I'm to read that while I ask you this uh, other question. Um, the, the, you know, they, they've got this big story right now. Is Georgia has this aggressive plan to reopen uh, starting this week. Governor is calling it, um, you know, a measured approach. Just from a medical perspective, though, it seems like it would be awfully hard to social distance in a nail or a hair salon or uh, even a gym. These are the this is we, we got the, the plans up uh, right now. But quickly go on and talk to me about how difficult is that, especially when someone someone has to touch you to do your hair and nails. Right. And then I, 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 I think at some point, you know, it, 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 it's just common sense. Right. Yeah. I mean, we have to keep talking about this. It's, it's, it's a little bit ridiculous. How do you physically distance somebody when they're cutting your hair or doing your nails? I mean, I ha my, my daughters who are, you know, 13 and, and 14 and, and 11. I mean, right away they're asking me, like, how, how does that work, Daddy? Yeah. I mean, everybody understands it can't. That, yeah. I mean, it, especially it, if you're doing someone's hair. It's silly that you and I. 
I said if you're doing someone's hair, I mean, you have to be Edward Scissorhands, but that that's not even six feet. I have the guidelines up. Uh, I hate to cut you off, but I want you to talk about these. Let's put them back up here. And, and let Employees are required to wear masks, okay? Consider providing masks to clients. Consider using face shields, gloves, smocks, etc. Items should be disinfected, disposed between clients, hand washing between clients. Sorry, doctor. Go on. What do you think of that? I think that uh, you should consider not opening yet, as that should be at the top of the list. I want it to open, too. I mean, I, I want all the same things that I think everybody else wants. I want that for me. I want it for my family. I want it for you, Don. But we're not there yet. Uh, I worry about this. And, you know, I, I, I like to be a charitable person, but uh, I, I find it hard with, with these particular decisions. We close late. We're opening early. People may get infected that don't need to. People may go to the hospital that don't need to. People may end up even dying that don't need to. It is true, Don, that when we do start to reopen things, it's going to be a risk. It's going to be a calculated risk. But there's some very clear guidelines here. And, you know, it's very interesting. I was watching this press briefing today, and Ambassador Burks, who's a very polite person, right, she, she basically said, uh, when asked about Georgia, she said, look, we put out guidelines. We gave very clear data. There are still outbreaks happening. I don't quite understand how you could possibly physically distance when you're doing these things like hair, hair and nails and stuff. Maybe they have some creative solutions to this. The president was then asked about it, and he said he's going to talk to Governor Kent. Maybe that conversation already happened. He said maybe they're going to test everybody before they go into the hair salon or the nail salon. They're not. We don't have enough testing. We don't have enough infrastructure. We hope to get to that point, but we're not there yet. So this is almost all risk and no reward. Not to mention, Don, who's going to go? To these places right now is that door handle contaminated did this person get tested has this place been disinfected what about the ventilation you could you could get the virus and you could get sick or maybe you don't get sick and you give it to somebody else and wouldn't you feel awful and we've been saying this for four months we're all in this together we really are never before have we been so dependent on each other so if you say hey you know what i'm willing to take the risk well know that you're taking the risk on my behalf as well, and I don't like that. Okay, You're taking the risk on my kids' behalf as well, and I don't like that. So, I understand that you're hurting. I understand that people are hurting. Yes, people. A lot of people are hurting, but there are people who are frontline workers who have to get out there. I did. I, you, you know, I did the color of COVID this weekend. Those people are at the grocery stores who didn't expect to have their lives be placed in danger because they have to work at the grocery store. They're driving buses, and you're protesting against. Uh, you're you're slapping the faces of people who are the healthcare workers who put their lives on the line every day because you want a haircut, you want to go play golf. You're concerned about. Of course, you're concerned about your business. Tell the president that, and you're out there with with um, with guns, with with weapons strapped to your chest. Saying, oh, you want to get, you're, you're, you're fighting against the people who are telling you to stay at home trying to save your lives. You're upset with those people. In the meantime, there are people who are keeping your cities going, keeping your loved ones alive, and you want to get a haircut? Who the hell do you think you are? What is wrong with people? I don't understand what is wrong with people. Stay at home. Yeah, yeah, you have the right to protest. You have the right to protest. Everyone does. Fine. I'm sure I will be criticized for this. And guess what? You have the right to criticize me. But I don't want to hear from those people who are out there protesting with guns, right? And that is threatening, a threatening look for people. You're protesting with guns. Don't, don't criticize people who are taking a knee for at a, at a ball game and entertainment things. Say, I don't want people protesting at a ball game. When people who are peacefully protest, don't give me that. When you're out there protesting with guns and saying, I want to get back to work, I want my liberty, 
Well, then you should be out there standing up for people who are, and I want to hear the same argument, go out there and help people who are protesting against their government as well for the treatment of their government as well. So I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. Don't be a hypocrite. I was basically defending their right to do so. They have a right to do so. Dr. Redfield earlier said uh, it's not very helpful. That's right. And, you know, the president said, you know, I've watched some of the protests on television. They're separated. There's space in between them. They're doing social distancing. And we've watched a lot of these protests. Maybe some of the protesters are, but I don't know what pictures he's looking at. But a lot of the video that we've looked at shows that they're not doing social distancing. And again, it's this kind of a mixed message. Uh, Don't worry. Don't pay attention to the guidelines that we have offered you from uh, the administration. And, you know, I want to add one thing to what Sanjay was saying about about Dr. Burks. I understand the need uh, to kind of be correct here and not be, you know, attack people, etc. But I think when people are looking for straight answers from the medical community, she was uh, trying to be creative, right, as you put it. And I think that an answer would have been, look, if I were uh, the governor of that state, I'm not so sure I would do this. Look at their look at their uh, look at their curve. Let's see where their curve is. Our guidelines call for downward trend over two weeks. And she shied away from doing that. And the president indicated that he's going to talk to the Georgia governor about the opening of beauty salons, et cetera. But I think in this circumstance, and maybe I'm wrong, Sanjay, and maybe, you know, maybe there is a need to kind of waffle a little bit on this. But I, I, I thought that in a way she could have been a lot stronger to these communities and say, look, we didn't put these guidelines out there for nothing. We spent a lot of time on this. We're trying to help you save lives uh, in your communities. You know, Jim Acosta is with us as well, our chief White House correspondent. Uh, Jim, uh, the president uh, using this moment with the uh, the coronavirus pandemic to announce a 60-day suspension of immigration into the United States. Oh, that's right, Wolf. And, and that appeared to a lot of people to be a distraction last night. It may just be a distraction at the end of the day. The president uh, was careful to note that farmers are not going to be uh, affected by this. The temporary workers uh, coming into this country to work on those farms uh, are, are not going to be covered under this executive order that's going to af- affect people essentially applying for green cards right now. And, and keep in mind, a lot of these offices are not open uh, for green card, uh, you know, people who want to get green cards uh, to stay in this country as a permanent resident, legal permanent resident. And so that this has come off, I think, as, as largely a distraction. Uh, but getting back to what Gloria and, and Sanjay were just saying a few moments ago, I mean, I think it, it, does, ha- it does have to be said uh, at this point that the president appears to be giving the green light to these protesters uh, who were at these demonstrations outside state houses around the country. Uh, the president was absolutely just gaslighting uh, people there uh, in, in the briefing room just a few moments ago, Wolf, when he said that these protesters are practicing social distancing. They're just not. Uh, the president you know, said a week ago when they released these new guidelines that if he saw any governor who was doing something that he disagreed with, that he would come down hard on that governor. Uh, that is not happening with these governors who are racing ahead of the administration's guidelines and opening up quickly, like Governor Kemp is in Georgia. And so it, it appears that, you know, when the president is going to sound off on these governors, it's when they're not opening up quickly enough. 
Uh, and, you know, and, and just to add to that, when the president is sending out protesters to these state houses to demonstrate against social distancing, uh, that is putting pressure on those state houses. That's putting pressure on those governments uh, to reopen. And so, you know, he is sort of attacking this from a couple of different vantage points, putting pressure on the governors and then really giving the green light to his his own supporters to demonstrate against these state houses uh, where they're not opening up quickly, Wolf. People are getting restless, especially people who aren't too bright. In Florida on Saturday, I saw the hashtag Florida morons was trending, and I thought, well, that could mean a lot of things. But what it meant was this. The governor of Florida reopened the beach in Jacksonville, and, of course, no one followed the rules. Fortunately, there are no old people living in Florida who might be at risk. So the governor of Georgia is planning to reopen tattoo parlors and bowling alleys this week, (laughs) which I think that's on their state flag, right? And thousands of Americans in more than a dozen states have gathered to protest stay at home. Not too far from us in Huntington Beach, this brave woman fought passionately for her right to all 31 flavors. There were some very creative signs that illustrated this plight. Many are experiencing so powerfully, like I need a haircut, massage is essential, Jesus is my vaccine, and Buddha is my personal trainer, I think. I don't know. In Denver, Colorado, there was a standoff between protesters and an angry healthcare worker. Well, you know what they say, it ain't over till the fat lady screams crazy right-wing talking points at a medical professional who's trying to save their family's lives. I'm starting to think these characters who support Trump might be suicidal. They seem to fight hardest for the things that will kill them. They want freedom to gather in large groups during an epidemic. They want guns. They want pollution. I figured it out. They want to die, and they're taking us down with them. It's like if the Titanic was headed towards the iceberg and half of the passengers were like, can you please speed this thing up? But our president has full confidence that what these protesters are doing is not a problem. Are you concerned, though, that people coming out in protest are going to spread uh, COVID to other people? They're congregating in ways that health experts have said they should not. No, these are people expressing their views. I I see where they are, and I see the way they're working. They seem to be very responsible people to me. Yes, yes, they are very responsible. They're very responsible. You're watching some of these states that are starting to reopen businesses as early as Friday. You know, on one hand, they're saying, look, we have to do this. Our economies are, are dying and people are hurting financially. On the other hand, they're violating even White House recommendations for reopening. What are your concerns here? I don't know if these lawmakers realize that we have ways in public health of calculating the death tolls that are directly attributable to their actions. We've seen these same mistakes being made with the HIV pandemic, where we saw leadership that cared less about the lives of residents and cared much more about political posturing and about science denialism. 
I'm so concerned that in states like Georgia, where we have the 14th highest rates of infection in the U.S., the seventh lowest rates of testing, and last week we saw more than 5,700 new cases, which was an uptick from the week ending April 5th, that they're even flouting the White House guidance about seeing a two-week declining trend in new cases. So these governors really are showing and I think signaling us so clearly that they care much more about their reputations, their friendship with the president, than they do about the lives of their constituents. Long term, though, you're saying, and look, you're not a political expert, but I think we can probably agree that a clear line between mishandling something and increasing deaths is not politically good. So what what you seem to be saying is that if you're looking at these states that are reopening, you're going to know in time if they did this to the big detriment of the lives of their constituents. That's exactly what I'm saying. I'm not speaking as a political expert, but very much as an epidemiologist and a public health expert who can say that we've seen these lessons before with the HIV AIDS pandemic and the mismanagement of other infectious. 16 fucking minutes. I could have played an hour. It's nonstop. But my favorite part and why I went today, I mean, this is pretty much what I live for on this podcast because of the media bias we have. Christopher Cuomo, please think about others. The Hill, Kentucky sees highest spike in corona cases after protests against lockdown. Now listen to this article. Now, it wasn't just The Hill. Listen to the article. Governor Bashar announced at a press conference that 273 new cases of COVID-19 had emerged in the highest Bashar had announced so far. This brings the current case to 2,960 in the whole state of Kentucky. 148 death. In response to this figure, Bashar determined the state will not reopen economic sectors or relax restrictions until there's a downward trajectory of reported cases for 14 days. We're still in the midst of a fight. This comes as the protest surge in Frankfurt last week against Bashar's restrictions, interrupting an evening news conference. The Lexington Herald noted that about 100 people protested, arguing that business needed to reopen after more than 500,000 Kentuckians filed for unemployment in March. Local outlets report that at least 13% or roughly 385 of the COVID-19 cases have been recorded in nursing home residents. Bashar also told reporters Sunday that 33 additional residents have tested positive. Bashar noted the state will need to increase testing and obtain more PPE even in case numbers decline. This follows news that Pastor Jack Roberts of Maryville Baptist Church, piece of shit Christian, filed a lawsuit against Bashar for what he did on Easter. Now, first and foremost, did you hear anything about the people that protested got COVID? No. There is no evidence that anybody that protested got COVID. This is a result of tests that were probably four days ahead of this protest. But Christopher Cuomo, who got it, gave it to his fucking wife and was seen out of quarantine, he had the gall to do it. Then, because CNN has nothing to do with real news, it's not what they're about, they don't actually want to be a news agency, they want to be a clickbait, they just want ratings, so they'll do fucking anything. Here's the very moment Christopher Cuomo emerged from his basement, where he's been writing out coronavirus, for the last several weeks, it sounded like this. All right, here is the official reentry from the basement. 
cleared by CDC, a little sweaty, just worked out, it happens. This is what I've been dreaming of, literally for weeks. My wife, yeah, right. <laughs> she was cleared by the CDC, she doesn't have fever, she doesn't have the symptoms anymore, more than seven days from her quarantine. We're still a little scared, so I'll just give you one of these, just give you one of these, just give you one of these, just give you one of these. Bella has, of course, taken the video. This is the dream, just to be back up here doing normal things. Let's bring in Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Doctor, uh, one of the things you may observe in that, and by the way, uh, it's very important tonight, especially that Sanjay is in Atlanta. He lives there. So we'll get a little kind of cross-purpose about how he feels about what's about to happen in his own state. Uh, but what you may have noticed there, Sanjay, very quiet um, welcome to me when I walked up the stairs. Two reasons. for that. As the, as the Onion uh, captured, um, they really don't want me out of the basement. But secondly, um, this has spooked the family. You know what I mean? We're spooked by this, like families that you've talked to all over the country. Um, it really rocked us when Christina got a case, albeit much more mild than mine, and I think she's just stronger than I am. Um, but the missus going down took a toll on us. It spooked the kids. And there's a little bit of a trauma and a recovery process that we're going to have to go through, as you see families all having. I never heard of recovery. I didn't know that this was like, you know, having some right. kind of like baby trauma. And now I have a three-week recovery process. I did the first part today. I could barely breathe doing a walk, 25 minutes. I felt like I was exhausted. Um, I did some little bands that usually I wouldn't even work, you know, warm up with. I, I felt pain. I felt strain. You know, this really knocked people sideways in a way that it'll take weeks. But today... Yeah. I'm a lucky guy was even luckier than ever, Sanjay. This was a day I've dreamed about literally for weeks. I loved seeing your family there, Chris. And, and Bella did an amazing job uh, being a camera woman there. It, 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 is, it is the physical and, and, and the psychological, Chris. And I think you've talked us through this. I mean, the physical part of this, even after you're recovered, right? You know, because we always put this in binary terms. Uh, you have it and then you've recovered. Uh, but what does that really mean? Uh, you know, we're getting some insight by looking at the studies uh, coming out of China, now some out of the United States, and then we're seeing you. We're seeing how you're, you're a, I know you're a healthy guy. You, you, you exercise a lot. Uh, this has really knocked you down physically. But that psychological component, Chris, I think is going to dovetail nicely into this next conversation because we cannot ignore what it's going to be like for people, even in places that may be reopening too early. We can talk about that. What about the psychological part of that for people? Mm. Is this safe? Can and I touch that door? we don't want to talk door? about it Is this person because it's testing? stigma. It's stigma. We'll play to the paranoia, right? Because that's a little bit easier. That's about us and them and the sick versus mm. the not sick. But people don't want to talk about how they feel uh, from this. I, I see it when I talk about it that, man, this put me into a depression. I've never had anything like this in my life. Yeah. It humbled me. I know so many deal with so much worse. I've covered it. You've covered it. I'm just saying for me personally... Mm. Uh, not that strong. And it really tore me up inside out in terms of making me reassess things about myself and my life. It scared me, like with some people when they get a heart attack. I know this is nothing like a heart attack, but for me it was. And when I talk about it, people go like this. Mm, is he talking about, is he crazy now? You know, they don't want to talk about the emotional and the psychological. It makes you seem strange. It makes you an other. But I think it's going to be a big part of this story, Doc. What do you think? Yeah, no, no doubt. And, and I'm, look, I'm glad that we've been able to talk about it. I hope that everybody has somebody to talk about it. It's not strange. 
this is real. I mean, and any kind of illness can sometimes uh, not just have an impact physically, but also have an impact psychologically. It's a brush with mortality. I, I knew you were going to be okay. I mean, I, I, I was very certain of it. Obviously, no one can be 100% certain of anything, but I felt good you were going to be okay. But I saw you, Chris. I saw you go through that doldrums, and I've known you for a while. I've never seen you like that before, and I'm not talking about the physical part. I am talking about the psychological part. This is affecting young, healthy people, and this, for a lot of people, is the first brush they've had with something serious. They're seeing it around them, and then they're seeing it in them, you know, within them as well. So, I mean, again, I, I, I think it's so important for people to have heard your story because maybe they are getting some of that people just wanting to keep their distance and then you know you you sort of uh, uh, let them know that there's other people out there like them talking about it so you know I think they appreciate it I certainly do and they've been so uh, helpful to me my new COVID fam you know I can't tell you how many have told me it's not over brother it's not over don't go jumping outside like you're going right. to do something you're going to faint um, that this was two weeks for me, three weeks for me, four weeks for me. I'm four weeks out. Right. I just tested positive again. You know, all these wacky things that are happening. The one thing I know for sure is I'm going to give myself a week or 10 days, take your guidance, uh, Dr. Fauci's guidance and others, and then I'm going to give you guys all the blood you want. Um, hopefully the plasma will help. I've never donated blood. I am completely a wuss about it. I go right down. they got to lay me down. i got to look to the side, and someone's got to tell me a story. But I'm going to do it. Because I want to give people the antibodies. Hopefully they help. I want to give them the plasma. I want to do anything I can to help anybody avoid what I had to do. Yeah, that, that's, that's amazing. And that's something I did not know about you, uh, your, your fear of uh, needles and, and blood. Good thing to keep in the back of my mind. Um, but you can help four people. You know, that's, that's, the, that's what the data shows, four people. So I hope your plasma is full of those antibodies. Uh, you're big guys. Maybe you can donate a lot. And uh, you'll help a lot of people, hopefully. You know, we, we, the studies still need to be so. done. We believe that the antibodies are in the blood. We believe that there's enough to actually give you immunity. We don't know that for sure yet, as, as, as we've reported on, Chris. Uh, but hopefully, if there is, it can help other people. That's how we start to actually see some significant light at the end of this tunnel, is through these therapeutics, potentially. I hope that's true. But I have to tell you, when I hear about the reopening, even again, full disclosure, my brother is Andrew. He is the New York governor. Uh, I was a little surprised by the deal with New Jersey and Connecticut yeah. to open up marinas and golf clubs and parks, not beaches. But, you know, I think there's going to be a cascade effect, first of all. And second of all, can you test all these people? I don't believe I can't get it anymore. I know that it's an open question in science, but paranoia wise, I'm worried I'll get it again. And when I heard about Georgia and him jumping, which is obviously a political move here in part, right? He looks good going early. He didn't even talk to your mayor and Atlanta about doing this. What is your thought about the process and the potential? I, I think people don't realize that what we've been going through for the last several weeks in the United States of America is a totally unprecedented situation and it has had a significant beneficial impact. And we've been physically distancing. People look at the situation now and they say, well, it's not that bad. Uh, there, didn't, there wasn't that many people who got sick, not as many people needed to be hospitalized, we didn't need as many ventilators. That's because we did something wholly unprecedented in this country, and a lot of people didn't want to do it in the beginning. Some people were late to doing it, including here in Georgia, but it made a huge difference. Chris. Problem is, it's a lie. Was this when you emerged before you went to the Hamptons or when you came back and hung out for a few more days and then reemerged? Carol Markowitz, which we'll read a screed in a second after an article, is this a joke? 
Yes, this is from Seltzer's newsletter. Chris Cuomo was in East Hampton eight days ago. This is bananas. Stephen Miller. Brian Seltzer said in his newsletter that Cuomo's wife contracted COVID-19. Cuomo in his Jesus video says she doesn't have it. Cuomo was also witness on record at another property 60 miles from his basement. How is this not a colossal Milli Vanilli-like scandal for CNN? Brian Seltzer. Washington Examiner article that I already had. Who the hell are you? I can do what I want. That was allegedly Chris Cuomo's response when he was confronted for decamping to Southampton and bringing coronavirus with him. Article. He's scary stupid. New York cyclist singled out in Chris Cuomo radio rant files police report. The bicyclist was called a jackass loser fat tire biker by Chris Cuomo in a radio rant filed a police report against CNN anchor. Cuomo expressed doubt about his job as a television anchor on Monday, partially because he wants to be able to fire back at those who confront him. I want to be able to tell you to go to hell, to shut your mouth. I don't get that doing what I do for a living. Me being able to tell you to shut your mouth or I will do you the way you guys do each other, he said on a Sirius XM show. I don't want some jackass loser fat tire backer to be able to pull over and get in my face and in my space and talk bullshit to me. I don't want to hear it. On Tuesday, a man who identified himself as Dave told the New York Post he was the biker Cuomo was ranting about. He said he filed a police report with East Hampton, New York police after being threatened by the anchor. Sometimes he's scary, stupid Dave, a 65-year-old who lives in East Hampton for most of his life, said of Cuomo. He explained that he spotted Cuomo and his family playing on Easter Sunday in the yard of a property on which the couple is building a home. The home is not completed, and Cuomo tested positive coronavirus was said to have been quarantined in Southampton, New York. Home, Dave, confronted Cuomo after leaving Southampton while sick. I just looked at him and said, is that Chris Cuomo? Isn't he supposed to be quarantined? I said to him, your brother's in the coronavirus czar, and you're not even following the rules. Unnecessary travel much? According to Dave, Cuomo allegedly responded, who the hell are you? I can do what I want. He just ranted, screaming, I'll find out who you are. Dave claimed that Cuomo threatened him, saying, he said, this is not the end of this. You'll deal with this later. We will meet again. If that's not a threat, I don't know what it is. The cyclist has decided to file a police report about the incident. He know that he did not want to file charges against CNN host, but wanted documentation of the incident in case he gets any more feelings as this guy's a threat to me. I hate bullies, Dave said. This was all over the place. But CNN ran, he just came out of his basement. He's been quarantined. This guy is giving advice to Governor Cuomo. And we're told by the media, Governor Cuomo is a leader doing this virus. He is the standard bearer. Did this make any mainstream media? Uh-uh. They ignored it. Carol Markowitz, you guys are Pravda. This is so absurd, I don't know how he did it. And then Seltzer passed it along with a straight face. A lot of people have contacted me saying that they they hadn't seen this story before and asking for more details. Like, how do I know that Cuomo wasn't allowed to be out on April 12th? And how do I know when he was diagnosed? I'm going to lay out the timeline in this thread. A lot of people have contacted me saying they didn't see this story. Like, how do I know? Uh, sorry, she repeated herself. 
I'm going to lay out the timeline of this thread. March 31st, Chris Cuomo announced he tested positive. His brother, Andrew Cuomo, said Chris found out this morning during a press conference on April 12th to 13th. Days later, he spotted outside his construction site by cyclists in East Hampton. Bicyclist says Cuomo was with several people, including his wife and his kids and another woman. This is not the home in which he's quarantining in. Many missed that April 13th on his own radio show. Cuomo told the story of a bicyclist yelling at him. The story had not yet hit the press, so it absolutely seemed like he was trying to get ahead of it. I include this for people who say Bicyclist is lying. He saw him. Cuomo outed himself. April 14th, he discussed with Sanjay Gupta that he had not gone without fever for 72 hours, which Gupta says is what doctors look for to allow someone to leave isolation. Cuomo appears fully aware of that guideline. Cuomo says he went 60 hours. Two weeks after first testing positive coronavirus, Chris Cuomo shared an update on how he's battling progressing. My body's not ready until it's ready. She used his own tweet. April 15th, Chris announces his wife has tested positive. He has his brother, Governor Cuomo, on his show to discuss this. This is actually the exchange that got my spidey sense tingling. There was just something off about it. The language, the mannerism. Actual tweet. Speaking with his brother, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, Cuomo announces his wife, Christina Cuomo, has tested positive for COVID-19. At this point, I had heard the story of the biker, but assumed Chris had been outside his own house. The exchange with his brother, Governor Cuomo, was consoling him about his wife getting COVID-19, made me think something was fishy. Started looking into the April 12th altercation. April 20th, he emerges from his basement as if it was the first time and announced himself cleared by the CDC. So obviously he wasn't cleared by the CDC to leave his home eight days prior. What do I want? Why am I so incensed by all this? I'm so angry at this theater that Chris and CNN have put on. Emerging from the basement yesterday, yesterday, disgusting. People have died from this, and he's blatantly breaking quarantine and putting on the show as if he hadn't. On April 16th, the day after Governor Cuomo was on the show to give him a pass about passing COVID-19 on to his wife, Christina, he extended the New York pause for another month. His brother's literally driving around and being outside with other people while actually having COVID. It's the same old thing. Do what I say, not what I do. These are the the elites. They think they can do whatever the fuck they want. They're not going to follow lockdown. This, This Cuomo incident is why New York City has 245 fucking thousand goddamn cases. Why they have half of all American deaths. They didn't follow any of this shit. The website's back up. 849,000 cases nationwide. 47,600 deaths nationwide. The disclaimer, 262,268 in New York and 20,364 deaths. New Jersey, 96,000 cases, well, it's actually 95,865, and 5,000 deaths. But the South, we're pieces of shit in the South, because some app says we're still driving. I mean, seriously, folks. These are the people telling you you can't leave your house. These are the people that was on that 60-minute soundbite saying we can never stop lockdown, ever, until we have a fucking vaccine. We must all stay in our house, be bankrupt, because that's what they politically want. 
got a soundbite today of AOC saying we all should have a standard income. They want to go full socialist. But it wasn't just the Hill. The Hill was one of many. The New York Post. Kentucky sees highest spike in coronavirus cases after lockdown protest. No link. No, no causality that there was actually people who were in the protest that spread coronavirus or got coronavirus. We're just saying it. The Independent. <clears throat> Kentucky sees biggest spike of corona cases after anti-lockdown protest. People start saying, wow, the shortest incubation period ever. Has the virus mutated? Man, that incubation time shrinks drastically when you have a narrative to push. Exactly. Weren't the protests this weekend like three to four days ago? Mike, great. I'm beginning to believe that every coronavirus headline is cynically and manipulative regardless of source. So do I, Mike. They should change the headline to Kentucky sees highest spike in coronavirus cases after protests against lockdown. Just saying. Not only have the protests been deadly, but they've accelerated the effects of the contagion. Considering the incubation timeline, there's two things of absolutely no correlation. Also, why are people believing there is some connection? I'll take two unrelated facts for $200, Alex. Dr. Molly Rutherford, does this take into account our recent increased testing? Kentucky is lagged behind neighboring states of testing, but within the past week we've ramped it up because we want to prove we can never open. Curmudgeon. I hope that math departments across the country see this and think about having a full-year, non-AP, statistical class as part of a graduation requirement. Algebra 1, geometry, intro to stats, algebra 2, for everyone. And numeracy is a huge social problem, and he's head-on. Sarah Baldessari, same media outlet that twisted Rita Wilson's words on the horrific side effect of the drug Trump touted as a miracle cure. No surprise here. John Gutilla, and the title strongly implies causation. It seems to clear to me they meant for it to be read that way. Jane Dobry, and there it is. Soon the red states will be the dead states. Acid Pit, warning kids, this is what happens when meth and guns become more important to you than education and dental hygiene. That's an actual reply by a liberal. Red states, dead states. Everybody's on meth and guns down here. Javier Gonzalez, natural selections. Doctors and nurses should leave the state. Bobby Gagan, predicted and predictable backfire of protesting. Because who the fuck are you as a conservative to ever protest? And let's just assume off the beginning, everybody protesting is all white, Nazi, swastika, fucking embezzled, fucking pieces of shit. But as for what, I saw plenty of African Americans. I saw liberals out there. I, I think even liberals want to go back to work. This motherfucker started it all. He's the one that tweeted it, and he's a motherfucker that wasn't doing shit he was supposed to. At last podcast, it was Snuffleupagus, another guy telling you, we can never open up the country again because COVID's a killer and he's out walking around without a mask and Hamptons. I'm telling you, I nobody's going to do an article on Southampton and how many cases they are that were brought to them by your media. Who couldn't follow the fucking rules. And the moving house things plays right into what I've been saying at the beginning 
Nobody's going to do an article. All these motherfuckers from New York who motherfucking fled and they motherfucking carried in their baggage COVID-19 and spread it on the eastern seaboard and blew the fuck up in Florida. Then maybe two articles. Stephen Miller, these protests didn't start because people were told to stay home. They started when government started telling them they couldn't buy garden seeds and child car seats or go for a walk alone with no one around. There's a lady in Idaho with her kids in a fucking playground. You've probably all seen it. She gets fucking arrested in front of her fucking kids. It's a reaction to overreach, he says. Um, they weren't told to stay home. Checks are coming. Your business would be taken care of. Neither happened for a good majority. What do you think was going to happen? They also said this was to keep medical facilities from being overwhelmed, and now they're claiming it's to keep people from catching the virus. As Miller said, Americans were told their businesses would take care of that they would should be taken care of, and that's not happening. What did they expect people to do? Chad Felix Green, oh no, only bad, scary people are out there threatening our safety. That's why the government has to shut them down. Jesus fucking Christ. Next article. With tens of millions of Americans suddenly facing unemployment because of COVID, we're still blessed to have plenty of supply of media reporters. The most famous, or at least Twitter famous, is the dynamic duo of CNN, Seltzer, and Oliver Darcy. But there are others. Here's Ben Smith, the New York Times media columnist, calling CNN's bizarre live shot of Chris Cuomo emerging from a tomb pretty remarkable. Ben Smith, the extent to which CNN has adopted reality TV values here is pretty remarkable, including alighting the controversy over Cuomo's travel. Dylan Byers, not going to weigh in on news versus self-referential t- reality TV debate, but we'll add this. So as long as people are talking about CNN, the mood inside CNN is the CNN is winning, or at least doing something right. Cable news is a business, and it measures itself on ratings. People in the entire world go, what ratings? <clears throat> do you see why my A block was just, I had to do it today? You're going to tell us all we have to stay home. You're going to tell us all that we are pieces of shit. We're all Nazis. We all fucking need to not sign waivers from getting medical treatment. None of you are doing it. That's why your state keeps blowing up with cases. Here's Tucker Carlson on the issue. Meanwhile, his brother over at CNN wants you to think that he has risen from the dead as well. Several weeks ago, he contracted coronavirus. We expressed sympathy for him that night. It was totally sincere. We haven't criticized him in any way since then. But then we watched him seize every chance to remind everyone watching that he was very sick and in very strict containment. But CNN, shameless cheese balls that they are, celebrated by filming Cuomo rising like a buff cable news Lazarus from the grave and back into ordinary life. When did journalists start talking about themselves so much? It's not a story, it's narcissism. And that's weird enough, but it's not all. That was fake. Just last week, Cuomo admitted getting into a fight with a bicyclist who harassed him for going outside and congregating with other people. Something CNN has been vilifying ordinary people for wanting to do. That whole exchange seems kind of unpleasant, but there's a scandal underneath it. Here you have a top CNN anchor who appears to have been ignoring the social distancing rules 
his network has been promoting and forcing on everyone else. It seems like he wasn't telling the truth about staying quarantined in his base. Remember, New York City is the state where churches and synagogues are shut down, but you can still go talk to Allah every day at midday prayer. And then we have the New York Times. Peter. Peters. Jeremy Peters. Overwhelmingly white virus protests based on characters' misinformation. On Tuesday's front page, Peters devoted 1,700 words to a culture war still simmering in quarantine, deriding conservative protests over oppressive state restrictions while framing liberal politicians and activists as founts of wisdom and sweet reason. Now remember, I just laid it out. You can add up the entire South. It's not New York. It's not New York. I mean, folks... We have 7,000, uh, let's pull it up again so I can make sure I'm making the point and hammering it home. The worst state in the South is Florida, and Florida, uh, my fucking computer's acting all crazy. Uh, let's see, Florida is the first one. It's number, uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 28,500. Louisiana, 25,200. Texas, 21,000. Georgia, 21,000. Then you get down to Tennessee. Virginia, 10. Tennessee, 7,800. North Carolina, 7,400. Alabama, that's killing black people, the root says. 5,600. Mississippi, 4,800. South Carolina, 4,700. Kentucky, 3,300. Arkansas, 2,300. I mean, once again, you guys played this as a red state, blue state. Nobody else did. And then you took your time and slowly just went around to go, we're going to make this a culture war. It's racist. It's white people. It's Christians. And you attack from your bunker. And none of it's true. It's just not true because when you add up the fucking two hundred and sixty two thousand two hundred and sixty eight New York and New Jersey has ninety five thousand eight hundred sixty five. I just say mother fucking checkmate. I mean the worst part of this is all you see is Florida beaches are packed. Nobody's playing New York City parks are still full of motherfucking people. That's why you still get five thousand fucking cases a day, you jackasses. Through the article, Peter Wordchart's made it clear side he's on. This is what it looks like when a pandemic collides with the culture war in America. The majority of Louisville, Kentucky, the mayor of Louisville, Kentucky, warned churches holding services Sunday. Mitch McConnell and Kentucky Republican Senate Majority Leader answered with a stern letter. Conservatives called her an authoritarian, a character. Her move as a slap of the people enjoy the outdoors. You can't go fishing. A local activist lamented an interview on Fox and Friends. Now Mr. Trump is speaking to minority Americans, minority of Americans, who believe the government has gone too far in trying to contain the threat and the virus. And he's doing so by spreading misinformation and innuendos. 
Groups on the right receive ideological warning labels pointed to a recent survey from the right-leaning American Enterprise Institute that found nearly 90% of houses of worship in the country were no longer offering services as usual. He offered no ideological label for the Pro-Abortion Center for Reproductive Rights or the ACLU, both of whom are suing conservatives Texas. Peters disdained the Trump-centric nature of some rallies while getting into drive-by fact-check on Sean Hannity again. We're going to let Sean Hannity defend himself today. That's, that's just what they do. We're just going to assume it's all white people and they're all fucking racist. They're all pieces of shit. Over one bullshit headline that everybody ran with. But that's our media. Katie Tour. Other subject. Hot scoop. Monday night. Chuck Ross caught it. Deleted it. She deletes this. And I'm putting it in here because this is how fucked up our media is. North Korean leader Jake Kim Jong-un is brain dead, according to two U.S. officials. He recently had cardiac surgery and slipped into a coma, according to one U.S. current and one former U.S. official. Later on, I deleted the last tweet out of abundance of caution, waiting for more info. Apologies. Stephen L. Miller, why change how you do things now? The dank night. You can lie about the GOP, but got to be really delicate when talking about a fucking dictator. Folks, these are the fucking people that smoking gunned everything to get Trump. Have said... People killed themselves because somehow they got their hands on hydrochloroquine and it's a fish tank cleaner. Has said Sean Hannity killed people because a guy heard a comedy made while he was already on his cruise or went to a funeral. They got a picture of her in a North Korean fucking announcer outfit. It's really fucking funny. And then Jennifer Rubin, dumbest thing to reopen now. 53% of her people, Georgia hair salons, 26% Florida beaches, South Carolina and Texas, 21% retail stores. That was her poll. It was the South. We're not talking about New York City where people are still fucking dying. Most of the world responded to her poll. Your mouth is the worst thing to open. But that's their focus. Because that's all they got. I mean, it's day in, day out, unrelenting. We must attack conservatives, Christians, label them all racist. It's an election year. Everybody's a Nazi. Unless you vote for Biden. I say it every time, folks. Go back in the catalog of this podcast. Every fucking convention that has ever happened for the RNC was horrible it was dark speeches, and they're all fucking Nazis. Pushing grandma off a fucking cliff. It is done all the way back to goddamn Reagan when I was a kid in high school and I wasn't even paying attention. But our money shot is our first music break. It's going to be long. 16 journalists coldly claim Trump and GOP 1000's death. I played some of these on here. This is a long soundbite. But I'm going to play him again. Trump tweeting like a punk. Yeah, Nicole Wallace, we played it. Uh, Trump Waterloo. That was Donnie Deutsch. I did not play this one. Donald Trump will not recover from this. How he mishandled the coronavirus, and that's lives. It's 40,000 right now. Because, once again, he killed them all. 
Joy is getting cocky. The truth of the matter is that even if Joe Biden was locked in a trunk in a basement in the middle of Canary Islands, he'd still win the election. Belittling briefings is Trump's infomercials. That was John Meacham. Uh, Don Lemon, shut up, you big bully. But does the president not understand that him coming out there every day and acting like a jerk is not going to help him with America people? Does anyone have the courage to stand up and call him a bully? You're the bully, motherfucker. You call everybody a fucking terrorist just because they're white. You're a racist, too. Behar, time to literally blow a whistle at briefings. Number 10, Trump demands North Korean-style loyalty oath from David Brooks. Number 9, portraying protesters as neo-Confederate Nazi zombies on Joy Reid. One of my favorite. Um, A.M. Joy, you have some folks on the right who are sensing that this is some global force, and they don't like things that are outside their borders. America first was a phrase that was used by Charles Lindbergh and Nazi sympathizers in 39, 40, and 41. It became President Trump's rallying cry. You have that on the right. Because once again, they're all watching Plot Against America, which will be on Monday's podcast, because I have some good reviews on it. And it was horrible, as I said in the last podcast, but I got some articles to read. Number eight, Trump to blame as much as China. That was Joe Scarborough. Number seven, CNNers jeered Trump's dangerous out-of-control briefings. That was Aaron Burnett. Number six, Trump's baked egg bob. That's Jim Acunta. Uh, number five, Trump madness and recklessness inciting insurrection. Carl Bernstein. Uh, Judy Woodruff's, Woodruff, Woodruff's number four, pinning Pence down on lives lost by administration. Joy Reid again, terrified by Trump's doomsday cult. That was Reza Aslan. Remember that one? Yeah, that was good. Number two, electing unhinged Trump, proving to be the most reckless thing in U.S. history. That's Thomas Friedman. He's a fucking piece of shite. And then number one, Republicans want veterans to die. The Republican Party claims to be the party of life. Talking about the unborn, but if you're uh, the born, my God, watch out. If you're especially in the greatest generation, if you're a World War II veteran in your 90s, if you're a Vietnam veteran in the 60s, if you're a Korean War veteran in your 70s, well, the hell with you. They're saying, well, hey, yeah, they're going to die. Yeah, we know older people are going to die. The greatest generation, a lot of people are going to die there. A lot of people are going to die there that are from Korean vets and Vietnam vets. But you know what? We have got to get Wall Street running again. There's even some bonus material in this article. Finally, the bright spot of the pandemic. People in northern India are getting fresh if distant looks at the Himalayas. We played that. Coronavirus is a cure for climate change. Christina Amanpour. We played that. So here's your top 16 cocksucking pieces of fucking shit. Un-American, partisan, prog, Nazis, fascists. They're just fucking fascists. They're media fascists. They grasp anything and they make it a political talking point so they can bash people that don't believe with them. And the worst part is what we've been saying for the last fucking three years. It's no longer just the candidate. It's everybody who votes for them. You're all pieces of shit because you don't think like me. No, I'm thinking it's very hard for Joe Biden right now because, you know, you've got these daily briefings, also known as rallies, that Trump is holding every afternoon for hours. I mean, he just bloviates on and on and on. 
Um, I'd rather just listen to the doctors at that time so that I can rest in peace. But the truth of the matter is that even if Joe Biden was locked in a trunk in a basement in the middle of the Canary Islands, um, he would still win this election. That's how bad his opponent is. So I don't even I'm not worried about it that much because everybody knows uh, Joe Biden. It's like having a relative that you haven't seen for a while, but you know, he's great. And when he comes back, you say, okay, good, come, come, sit with us. We want you back. I think that's what really is going on. That was President Trump uh, giving the latest update on the pandemic. The president was very angry. If you were watching that over the past hour and a half or so, trying to rewrite history regarding his response to coronavirus. Coronavirus, as of today, has killed more than 23,000 Americans. I want to get straight to our panel who has been standing by as we all have been watching this. John King, uh, let me start with you. Uh, the president was extremely angry and uh, lashing out, frankly, uh, multiple times at various reporters. Aaron, the briefing was breathtaking from beginning to when we dropped out, and at times it bordered on dangerous. Uh, the president began with a propaganda video. Uh, that's right, Aaron, and I, and I have to tell you, that is the biggest meltdown I have ever seen from a president of the United States uh, in my career. I don't think a reasonable person could uh, watch uh, what we just saw over the last hour and conclude that the president is in control. He sounds like he is out of control. And he was ranting and raving for the better part of the last hour during that news conference. As John King was just saying, he's claiming that he has authorities that he doesn't have. Uh, the Constitution does not give the president of the United States uh, total authority. And I thought it was very illuminating that Vice President Mike Pence uh, got up there at the podium uh, and, and described the president's authority as plenary or absolute. Uh, that is not the case. Uh, that is a fact check false. Uh, but getting to your question, Aaron, I mean, I, I do think to some extent the president is realizing uh, that the walls are closing in on him when it comes to managing this crisis. And I found myself thinking about the people in hospital wards who, who they don't want to talk about the past. They want to talk about right now. They need help right now. But the president is not showing empathy for those people. He is not showing compassion for the, the families that have lost loved ones. Instead, he's trying to play small ball. He's trying to fight against the media because that works for him. Culture war fights work for him. He knows how to do those. He's really good at those. He's trying to talk his way out of a mess that he created himself when over the past 45 to 60 days, both he and members of the conservative media were in this echo chamber saying to one another uh, that the public did not have to worry about this when clearly uh, his own administration should have been preparing for the pandemic that unfolded, perhaps not to the severity uh, that we're seeing right now, uh, but obviously they had time to get ready. Uh, the president He's been had time able to, to, with the, the Republican-led Senate, do whatever he wants, right? He, he uh, was allowed uh, to be impeached but not thrown out of government, and so I think he's operating uh, with this notion that I am the king. I can do whatever I want, um, and, and we're, we're all yeah. suffering for it. Well, no, but I don't think anybody's buying it. I mean, at this briefing, it featured a propaganda-style video produced by the White House. Now, Joy, I, I, I know you're a, a big fan of no dictators here. Uh, what did you make out of this spectacle? 
Well, first of all, let me give props to Caitlin Collins because finally the uh, the press is questioning him and calling him out on his lies. And every criminal president has asked the following question. What did you know and when did you know it? So there's a big gap of what he already knew in February. He knew a pandemic was coming, and what he did was he played golf. So that is a true statement, and Caitlin Collins is nailing him on it, okay? And I think that going forward, all of these reporters, every time he lies... They should take out a whistle and blow a whistle so that they would be the country's real whistleblowers. Or else somebody in the corner should have a Pinocchio with a nose growing. We must be told about the lies because they're continuous. And I've always maintained that this is the worst thing about this presidency is his lying. Because that is what really creates dictatorship. So reckless, the legal definition, is that you perceive a risk and then do that risky thing anyway. And it seems to me the exact definition of the president saying to protesters in states that are following his guidelines, by the way, they are federal directives. Yeah, you should be angry. You should liberate your states. What's the play for him in that? Well, the play for that is is to his base as well as to cover up his own malfeasance and misfeasance throughout this uh, terrible episode in our history from January to March while he fiddled and Rome literally burned. But let's look at what he did and said today. The President of the United States, at the moment of this nation's utmost vulnerability since World War II, preached and incited to the people of this country insurrection. It's madness. And it's a a degree of recklessness that's really inconceivable. And one of the things you're seeing from the governors, particularly they're led by Larry Hogan, a Republican of Maryland, Uh, your your brother, governor of, uh, of New York, a Democrat. But they are almost united to the person in knowing how reckless this president has been through this ordeal. And now we find ourselves in a situation where, like looking at, nurses in garbage bags, in our operating theaters, in our hospitals, in our ICU units. We don't have the most basic testing apparatus that uh, Singapore, that South Korea was able to save its citizens because it proceeded methodically. And we have a president who says, I'm not a supply clerk. Can you imagine FDR in World War II saying, I'm not a supply clerk? This is Mm -hmm. something obscene. The president is egging on people who have been protesting their state restrictions, sometimes in large crowded groups. Uh, Is he potentially putting these people's lives in danger? Well, Wolf, what the president did today is just another reminder that um, in electing Donald J. Trump as president, the American people did the most reckless thing they have ever done in our history. I think the governor of Washington state got it exactly right. It's unhinged. The job of the president right now is to be the nation's chief scientific officer, tell us where we are, what's working where, um, and secondly, to be the nation's chief procurement officer, get people the testing equipment they need uh, if they are going to end sheltering in place restrictions over the next few weeks. Those are his only two jobs right now. Fomenting revolutions in blue states with Democratic governors uh, is only uh, unhinged is the only word for it. it uh, you know, it, it, I don't know what 
what mental illness he has, Wolf, but it's just really important that we in the press don't catch it. Uh, it's really important that we continue to do our job. Well, so when he uh, uh, tweets, as he did today, liberate Minnesota, your home state, by the way, liberate Michigan, liberate yeah. Virginia, save your great Second Amendment, uh, it is under siege. Uh, I, I assume he sees some sort of political benefit, even in a time when thousands of Americans are dying. Yeah, I mean, the whole point about this uh, moment is that we are all in it together. Remember, I think he even said that once, and we all need to rise up above politics. And you see Trump sort of self-satisfied, but also now agitating some of the governors, saying it's it's your decision, but getting on Twitter uh, and really uh, giving a green light to his supporters who have been protesting in some of these states against the governor's uh, stay-at-home orders, many of which have been extended. So you see a lot of mixed messages as the president continues to want to take credit for the good news and to deflect all the blame and all the tough questions onto governors. So you've got a president eager uh, to, to take credit. you got a president who's watching television, who's reacting when he feels like he doesn't get that credit from other people on television like Governor Cuomo. But the big question, the big hurdle here related to testing uh, remains unanswered. All right, Matt Miller, let's slow this way down because this seems like a really important point that Eli is reporting. This moment is like every other in Donald Trump's presidency where it's about his fragile, teeny tiny ego and the vast uh, nation that he leads and he's making all of his decisions based on press coverage okay so stipulated i think that's right the difference here matt miller is that people are dying more than thirty thousand people have died the virus is still spreading across the country and donald trump today like a punk seemed to tweet uh about the republican party claims to be the party of life if you're talking about the unborn, but if you're the born, my God, watch out. If, if, if you're especially in the greatest generation, if you're a World War II veteran in your 90s, if you're a Vietnam veteran in your 60s, you're 70s, for John if, you, generation. If, you're a, if you're a Korean War veteran in your 70s or 80s, uh, well, the hell with you, because I could, you're right, there's a growing list of Republican senators. Republican congressmen and women, White House officials in the Republican Party that are saying, yeah, sure, senior citizens are going to die, but what the hell? We really got to get Wall Street moving again. We really got to get Boeing Corporation moving again. We really got to get these Fortune 500 companies moving again. They're not even being subtle. They're basically saying, yes. Older people are going to die. The greatest generation, a lot of people in the greatest generation are going to die. You know, these same people who tear up on, you know, June the 6th, every June the 6th, about what happened at Normandy. But now, because corporate profits for Boeing and other Fortune 500 companies are, are going down and the stock market's struggling, they're saying, well, yeah, yeah, they're going to die. Yeah, older people. We know older people are going to die. The greatest generation. A lot of people are going to die there. A lot of people are going to die that are, are, are Korean War vets and Vietnam vets. But you know what? We got, we got to get, we got to get Wall Street, uh, purring again. It's really. But even some critics of the WHO say the worst time to cut off its funding is in the middle of a pandemic that save that beef. Save this discussion about reforms for later. So doing it now is a bold and controversial stroke by the president. But let's step back again to what this really is. It is another attempt by the president to turn your attention 
to somebody else. So obviously they, they feel like they've come up with a, a, a distraction to use at today's briefing. Yesterday it was the news media. Uh, today it's the WHO. And if you go through the scapegoats that he's blamed uh, so far for this coronavirus pandemic, the WHO, members of the news media, Democrats in Congress, uh, governors, he's blamed China, he's blamed the Obama administration, he's blamed everybody but himself. And, and Wolf, it, it just it comes to mind what we saw yesterday during that briefing, that Monday meltdown, when he played that propaganda video in the White House briefing room, uh, these briefings uh, altogether are, are coming across like something out of Baghdad Bob. Uh, Baghdad Bob being the Iraqi military official who was claiming during the Iraq war that the United States uh, was not making its way into the Iraqi capital. Uh, the president is sounding very uh, Baghdad Bob-like in the way that he's uh, signing blame to everybody but himself. He is not taking any responsibility for this. Uh, one of the things he just said a few moments ago about the World Health Organization, I'll, I'll just read you the quote. He says, it would have been so easy to be truthful. That was an exact quote from the president. And yet this is a president who time and again uh, throughout this crisis has been playing fast and loose with the facts, lying about things, uh, for example, saying that the Obama administration... People in northern India are getting a fresh, if distant, look at what has been shrouded by pollution for decades. Back there, you see it, the towering Himalayan mountains. One resident said he could see the peaks from more than 100 miles away. The country has been under lockdown for more than two weeks, and that has dramatically improved the air quality and visibility. There has been a trend of cities worldwide reporting cleaner air since the lockdowns were put into place. Our meteorologist Derek Van Dam has been looking into this. He joins me now. Uh, and Derek, uh, this is often a topic we talk about uh, here at CNN. And finally, you know, this is a bright spot in this era of pandemic. Like, bring on the electric cars and, you know, climate solving climate change isn't that hard. <laughs> Preaching to the choir right there, Natalie. Uh, you know, I like to consider myself an optimist, and I think you could probably uh, relate to this just on my daily run today across Midtown Atlanta, where, where we live. Uh, the skies have never been this blue, in my opinion. And I've got a theory. Of course, there's virtually no car traffic, no airline traffic taking place out of Atlanta's Hartsfield International Airport. Of course, a few planes, but virtually nothing compared to what it would normally be on any given day. And, uh, yeah, there's just less air pollution. John Meacham, the president personalizing that. I thought that was interesting. I, I, look, he's not wrong. This decision, if he makes it too soon, um, it would be uh, probably the most consequential uh, of his presidency. Uh, and, it, and it wouldn't and perhaps could go consequential in a really bad way if, if he's wrong. It, absolutely. And it, it's a it's in keeping with his monarchical tendencies here. Uh, I think these briefings are really infomercials more than briefings. He is constantly selling his own reaction to the crisis in the face of facts. And I think that ultimately what you're seeing with the numbers uh, is Americans at some intuitive level understanding that the president is selling them He's not protecting them. 
Ressa Aslan, it, abortion is the, the key to support for Donald Trump and the fact that he'll nominate judges who may overturn Roe v. Wade. That's the sort of core of the support. Is it as simple as, as that or is, is there more of sort of a also, you know, the tide of the country turning toward black and brown folks? Is, is it all of that or, or one of more than the other? Well, I think it's, it is important to understand that for a lot of evangelical Christians, particularly white evangelical Christians, abortion had a huge role to do with why they supported Donald Trump. And Donald Trump very much in a cynical way used abortion uh, as a means of gathering that kind of support, record support, as you know, Joyce, some 81% of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. That was a record in this country. That's more white evangelicals than voted for George W. Bush, who was actually a white evangelical. And so part of it has to do with that, the kind of cynical politicking that's always involved in Republican campaigns to try to bring the evangelical vote. I think Trump just did a better job at it. But I don't think that we should pretend that the white part of this sentence doesn't matter. 67% of evangelicals of color voted for Hillary Clinton. These are people who more or less believe the same thing, hold the same theology, but just have a different skin tone. Um, I think there was this wonderful article in Christianity Today, uh, not long after the election, that said that white evangelicals acted more white than evangelical. I believe my good friend Jim Wallace has made comments like that as well. So race unquestionably played a part in it. But I think that there is something deeper as well. And it has to do with uh, what sometimes is referred to as the loss of the culture wars by uh, white evangelicals. I've written a lot about this. I've spoken a lot about the way in which Trump's evangelical supporters have started to seem like a kind of cult, um, a, a deeply insular group that's bound together by this extreme devotion to a charismatic leader. And what I'm really worried about right now with this pandemic is that what what allows a cult to truly thrive is a sense of siege. This worked in 2016 because Donald Trump told them that, you know, Democrats are out to destroy churches and kill babies and take away their guns and that worked. But now we are literally experiencing a sense of siege. And so this backlash that you're seeing from a lot of pastors in places like Louisiana or Kansas, Kentucky, across the country, frankly, to try to prove something by forcibly having these in-person uh, services, defying the authorities, uh, defying medical advice in order to make some kind of point about their support for Donald Trump. This is the kind of behavior, this cult-like behavior that can lead to, as Jim said, to the deaths of thousands of people. It's, it's no longer just a cult of personality. I don't think we can call it that anymore. It's now becoming a doomsday cult. Yeah, it's terrifying. Two other things I want to ask you about. We have been looking ahead, but I also would say it's important to look for a moment at how we got here. The United States today has more coronavirus cases than the major countries in Europe combined, more deaths than anywhere. In January, as you know, Mr. Vice President, there were pervasive warnings from the intelligence community here, from top administration officials. There were mistakes made, no question about it, in China. There were delays at the World Health Organization. But the president did stop travel to the U.S. on January 30th. But for days and even weeks after that, he said the U.S. is in a good place. He said he assured Americans everything is okay. How many lives do you believe were lost as a result of the delay 
by this administration. In electing Donald J. Trump as president, the American people did the most reckless thing they have ever done in our history. This is what happens when you elect a sociopath as president. All his worst qualities, his mendaciousness, his, uh, his constant telling of lies. His delays, his incompetence, his ignorance has turned deadly. Dangerous. 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 This will be something that's paid in human lives, and that's an enormous tragedy. Do you think President Trump is responsible for the deaths of Americans? What is President Trump's level of culpability? Do you think there is blood on the president's hands, considering the slow response? He became the chaos president, but what the American people want right now, and they're not getting, is a coronavirus president, and and a, a chaos president just isn't fitting the bill. This isn't reality TV anymore. People are dying, and this guy is acting a fool. Is there anything or anyone that can tell him to pump the brakes or at least pretend to care about the loss of life. We're still going to die mm-hmm. because of Donald Trump's incompetence and lack of leadership. There is death after death after death that is on the president's watch. More people are dead and dying in America tonight because Donald Trump is president. How much more? How many people... Welcome back to Flyover Politics Podcast with Tony Reese. Welcome back. It's an unproven drug often touted by President Trump as a possible treatment for coronavirus. What do you have to lose? Take it. I really think they should take it. Hydroxychloroquine. Try it. Hydroxychloroquine which I think, as you know, it's a great malaria drug. It's worked unbelievably. What do you have to lose, President Trump asked? Well, today, a new Veterans Health Administration study found no medical benefit to hydroxychloroquine when it comes to coronavirus patients and that it could actually be harming patients who take it. Joining me now is CNN Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, you know, this is crappy news. We all want something to work. Take us through this study. Right. Yeah, no, no doubt. We, we're all looking for some sort of therapy, and hydroxychloroquine is the one that's been getting a lot of attention. Uh, this, is a, this is a study of some 368 patients. Still a small study, Jake. We're going to get larger data studies, so we have to take all of these studies with a little bit of a grain of salt. This one was not peer-reviewed. It was not randomized, meaning patients weren't put in one group versus the other but in some random fashion. But nevertheless, exactly what you said, Jake, the patients who in this study got hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin, that's the z pack the antibiotic, uh, this study, they did worse. They had a close to a 22% death rate as compared to the patients who didn't get those medications who had about an 11.4% death rate. So um, it, it, it doesn't look very promising. You know, uh, there was, this is a, a, another study among a drumbeat of studies now. Again, all of them pretty small. We, we're still waiting for the larger studies. But if you look at France, you look at Brazil, you look at Sweden, you're hearing similar things. In France, they said they found a dose that was too toxic. And it was actually causing heart arrhythmias. In Sweden, they gave guidance to all the nation's hospitals to stop administering this medication outside of a clinical trial. So 
um, you know, I think you framed it perfectly. We all want something that works. Uh, there was, there's obviously been a lot of enthusiasm around this particular one, but so far the results have not been uh, that impressive at all, Jake. Let's talk about this study uh, of antibody testing out of Los Angeles County. It found the true number of coronavirus cases could be actually 55 times higher than traditional testing shows. In L.A. County, the study found 4.1% of adults are or have been infected. Uh, it seems remarkable. What does it mean? Well, it, it's interesting, and this is the second, so there was a Stanford study that sort of showed the same thing. They had 1,000 patients confirmed up there and showed that it could be actually as many as 80,000 people who had been exposed to the virus, and, and similar sort of ratio here, you know, 40 times as many patients that it was actually exposed versus those were confirmed. It means two things. Uh, it's, it's like most things, Jake. Uh, there's some bad news and good news in this. The bad news is uh, that this virus has seemingly spread even more than we have thought. We've suspected this for some time. It's a contagious virus, and we haven't been testing adequately. So now we're starting to get a glimpse of just how far this has spread. But at the same time, Jake, uh, many of those people who were subsequently you know, thought to have been exposed to this either had no symptoms or they had minimal symptoms, which in part is, is good news because that brings down the overall fatality ratio. Fatality ratio is the number of people who've died over the number of people who've had these confirmed infections. If there are more people who've had the infections, then that's going to bring down the fatality ratio. We still don't know what it is. It seems to be variable country to country, even region of country to other regions of country. But if there's a lot of people out there who aren't getting sick from this, it means it's widespread but not as deadly uh, as if the, with the few confirmed infections that we have. That's CNN once again and NBC News linking Trump to the coronavirus cocktail. As a part of a never-ending campaign to bring down Trump, NBC News attempted to blame the Republicans for the death of a person who took hydrochloroquine after a doctor prescribed it. According to an article posted on Saturday by Beckett Adams, a senior commentary writer for the Washington Examiner, NBC News, which must have thought it its fish tank cleaner story was a slam dunk, is trying to pin another hydrochloroquine adjacent death to President Trump. Heidi Prezaba reports that week this week that a 65-year-old New York woman, Legia, I don't know what her name was, it's just Legia, died of a heart attack shortly after being prescribed the drug. The woman's family believed the drug cocktails what killed her. They're also Democrats. The 65-year-old woman was prescribed a malaria drug, an antibiotic by her doctor to treat coronavirus symptoms. What exactly is the story, Adams asked? Is this a medical malpractice? Perhaps. But does that not explain why Trump's name appeared four times in the article? Because they just want to do it. The soundbite you heard was a study by the VA that said it didn't work, yet there's other studies that show it did work. And once again, it's just because he talked about it. Then they tried to say that he invested in it and then they tried to say he's killing people because they drink fish cleaner they would say anything as Tammy duckworth a vet shows donald trump's basic responsibility is to keep america safe the rising death count shows that he's failing instead of spending his time deflecting blame he should start listening to governors and give them the supplies they need to fight the covid public health crisis joe pilot md you need to stop after that stunt where you lied about the end-of-life pamphlet at the VA, you really need to stop. And then, hopefully, the 2024 candidate for president, Dan Crenshaw, comes in. You are being bombarded with left's hyperbolic and hypocritical attacks about the Trump administration's response to coronavirus. It's disingenuous and counterproductive, so it's time to debunk this false narrative 
with facts. You need to hear this because you're being bombarded right now with these really over-the-top accusations against the president that he's got blood on his hands, that his denial and delay has cost lives, and that basically he took no action until it was too late. The question is, is any of this true? Let's start back in January. January 15th, the first patient with coronavirus enters the United States from Wuhan. That was also the same day that these impeachment pens were being handed out. But luckily, the administration was on top of it a couple days later, January 17th. They were already implementing screenings at San Francisco, Los Angeles, and New York airports for flights coming in from Wuhan. But still, even about a week later, our mainstream media was still promoting things like this. Doctors saying, hey, this isn't a big deal, not much more dangerous than the flu. Nevertheless, President Trump did implement that travel restriction on January 31st, even though things like the World Health Organization were saying no need to limit trade and movement. And they largely criticized President Trump's travel restrictions. Same day, January 31st, that Nancy Pelosi proposed the No Ban Act which would actually stop President Trump from implementing the life-saving travel restrictions that he did implement. So was everybody else really sounding the alarm at this point in time? No, of course not. Headlines like these were being written, and constantly, and by mainstream outlets. Again, I don't blame them. These are the facts they had at the time. Adam Schiff, the uh, chairman of the Intelligence Committee, was getting regular updates in that committee. But he didn't even publicly talk about coronavirus until February 25th. And let's not forget that President Trump did talk about the coronavirus in the State of the Union on February 4th. What happened to that State of the Union? That happened. So fast forward a couple of weeks when the president actually asked Congress for supplemental funding to combat the virus, two and a half billion dollars. What did Nancy Pelosi do? Instead of putting that money on the House floor to be voted on, she put a bill to ban flavored tobacco. That was the priority of the Speaker of the House. You also hear a lot of criticism for Trump being overly optimistic. But this is what Nancy Pelosi was saying in late February, telling people to go out and enjoy themselves for the Chinese New Year. Come to Chinatown. Here we are. Same with Bill de Blasio in New York City. He's spot on. Spot on. And I don't know who sent this to me, but it's a cartoon. MS Media. A donkey thinking about a nuclear bomb. Dear God, if you even exist, please destroy America so that it makes Trump look bad. Thoughts and prayers. And it's true. That's that's who they are, man. It's, it's just all about, can we get him out of office? How can we take this national disaster and make Republicans look bad? It's what we did with Katrina. Katrina looked great. We initially didn't for 9-11, but then we did afterwards with Iraq. It's either... That, or it's this. We need Big Brother to beat this virus. Don't let the civil liberties lobby blind us to the fact that greater state surveillance, including ID cards, is required. That's an article from a liberal website that you have to have a prescri- uh, subscription to. And they put that out. They believe it. Then comes some really, really ugly. And once again, this is all the playbook. It's an election year. There has been a concerted effort ever since Fox News showed up to get rid of Fox personalities. They got rid of Bill O'Reilly. They got rid of Eric Bowling. And remember, we did a whole election cycle about Rush Limbaugh saying Sander Luck or Slander Flukes a slut. So 
This was Newsweek that outdid, or this was Vox that outdid Newsweek, which we covered in the last podcast. Coronavirus deaths greater amongst Fox News viewers that prefer Hannity over Tucker Carlson, study says. So Vox says, hold my fucking beer. These are the headlines and parts of the article. A disturbing new study suggests Sean Hannity's show helped spread the coronavirus. Sophisticated new, new research links Hannity's coronavirus misinformation to a greater number of COVID-19 cases and death. Sophisticated new research. That's like a catchphrase like uh, women's reproductive health. It's just bullshit. They just made it up. Uh, Zach Beauchamp, Mr. Gaza Bridge, Bridge Guy himself, writes... Throughout the coronavirus pandemic, media critics have warned that the decisions from the leading Fox News hosts to downplay the outbreak could cost lives. A new study provides statistical evidence that in the case of Sean Hannity, that is exactly what happened. Pause for bolded new section introduction. Why the finding that Sean Hannity killed people is disturbingly plausible. Which means we can't really prove it. It seems that people really do see media as a guide to some of their most intimate life choices. Given how much a certain segment of older white conservative Americans trust Fox, it seems very plausible that they took cues from their favorite anchor on how to handle the coronavirus outbreak. For some of Americans, that choice may well have been a fatal one. No word from Zach on Christ's effects of Vox repeatedly downplaying the gravity of COVID virus, which we played on the show. Uh, all their headlines. You're racist if you don't go to Chinatown. Guess nobody thought to do sophisticated new research. By the way... This is a working paper. It hasn't been peer-reviewed or accepted for publication as a journal. However, consistent with wide body of research finding the media consumption in general and Fox News viewership in particular can have a pretty powerful effect on individual behaviors. This sophisticated new research hasn't been peer-reviewed or published by a reputable journal, but it's still sophisticated and valid because, hey, it makes Fox News look bad. And that's really the only message here. Ben Dominish. This is obviously flawed study. Highlighting it is irresponsible. <clears throat> then what about the guy that shot up the baseball field? He watched MSNBC. He was a Bernie supporter. We said it was still Trump's fault. That, that's what you said in the media. And since consistently uh, New York City has the highest amount of deaths and the highest amount of cases, so does New Jersey. So does the whole fucking Northeast with fucking Massachusetts having 46,000 per capita. That's an incredible amount of people. They don't watch Fox. So how is that true? This is still playing off the red-blue state craziness you tried to make happen, and it doesn't add up. We don't have the deaths. We don't have the cases. We we just don't have it down here. Because we didn't go to Chinatown. Here's Hannity. First, we just witnessed more blatant, malicious deception, smears, lies, besmirchment from the mob and the media. Look at this article in the New York Times. It is entitled, A Beloved Bar Owner Was Skeptical About the Virus, Then Took a Cruise. Times columnist, well, this woman's name is Ginia Belafonte, pretty much all but accused yours truly of murder. The story featured a well-liked New York bar owner. His name was Joe Joyce, apparently an avid fan of Fox News. First, I want to stop with all my heart. I want to extend my sympathy to Mr. Joyce's friends, so well liked apparently, his family, his loved ones, and Mr. Joyce apparently was a very special person. I'm sure this is very hard on all of them and so many other people that are dealing with what the president rightly calls an invisible enemy. It is an enemy. 
Now, the Times claimed that because of something I said in early March, March 9th to be exact, well, Joyce decided it would be okay to take a cruise to Spain. Now, they claim he ultimately contracted coronavirus, didn't quite tie it to the cruise completely, and sadly, he passed away. Now, this is where the New York Times slander begins. In order to smear yours truly, they literally, this woman exploited a man's tragic death. She willingly, maliciously, purposefully took something I said completely out of context and as proven by all my past statements that the New York Times was very well aware of, and it gets worse. The remarks that she used, yeah, they were from March the 9th, again, taken out of context, it was also eight days after Mr. Joyce embarked on his cruise. Those are the remarks she referred to in her slanderous piece. That is slander. That is libel. And forget about me in all of this. Politicizing a tragedy, this New York Times so-called writer, reporter, whatever she is, has added to the pain and suffering of a family that deserves better. This was all done to vilify this program and this channel. And that's not all. As reporter Joel Pollack of Breitbart.com and then multiple other outlets to their credit pointed out that when the New York Times got caught spreading the lie, in other words, whoops, they already took the cruise. Uh, yeah, we messed that up. What they did is they didn't make a correction. They didn't highlight a change. They just tried to sneak it in a stealth edit in the article. In other words, to include a more accurate timeline, considering they botched it the first time. And by the way, that completely contradicted the entire thesis of their article. A real journalist, a real newspaper would admit that they were wrong, issue an apology, issue a correction. In an interesting way, their stealth edit is nothing but an admission of their guilt and an example how they tried to cover up their smear, their slander, their lies, and everything else. Ms. Belafonte, she's a hack. She works for a disgraceful organization, the same people that lied, Russia, Russia, impeach, impeach, Ukraine, Ukraine, uh, and Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh, same people that protected Clinton, that protected Comey, the deep state, and that never investigated the biggest abuse of power corruption scandal in history because they were too billing, busy uh, spreading conspiracy theories and more hoaxes. And by the way, yet another example of beyond journalist malfeasance here, they're culpable, and quietly editing the content when they are caught red-handed. And by the way, that's not where this story ends. It gets worse for them. On February 27th, three days before Mr. Joyce decided to go on his cruise, the same New York Times hack that tried to blame me for his death, Ginia Belafonte, she tweeted this, I fundamentally don't understand the panic. Incidence of the disease is declining in China. And by the way, the virus is not deadly in vast majority of cases. Production and so on will slow down and will obviously rebound. Okay, that is the type of behavior. By the way, same New York Times five or six days after the president put the travel ban in effect. That would be the same New York Times that said, it's, who says it's not safe to travel to China? Uh-huh. Bad advice there, too. This is the kind of rampant hypocrisy, negligent behavior that is so widespread. This is the 99% of the mob in the media, and I call them a mob for a reason. They are nothing but state-run print, state-run TV. They are the allies of all things radical, democratic, socialist, and extremists. Tonight, their pattern of misconduct can be broken down into three categories. Let's look at one. 
The New York Times played down. They ignored the virus. Number two, they politicized the virus. Remember, they used it to call the president a racist with the travel ban. And they accused the president, Fox News, yours truly, this program, not taking the virus seriously enough. Um, they were given all the evidence to the contrary. For more details, let's look at our comprehensive timeline. New York Times, January 8th. They reported, quote, there is no evidence that the new virus is readily spread by humans. Okay. Keep in mind, in January, China was involved in a massive cover-up, and the information that we were getting was full of lies, completely inaccurate. January 14th, World Health Organization. Remember them? We pay those bills. Chinese authorities have found no clear evidence of human-to-human -human transmission. January 15th. COVID-19, well, remember, it wasn't even on Nancy Pelosi's radar. Top Democrat in the country is all smiles. She's doing the selfies, giving away pens, you know, signing off on her big impeachment stunt with commemorative everything. But only a week later, January 21st, the first case, January 21st, the first case of coronavirus in the U.S. On that very same day, even America's top expert, who I have a ton of respect for, he has spent a life, he has saved lives all throughout his career. He didn't understand it either. He was being lied to, too. Dr. Fauci said this is not a major threat to the people of the United States. January 26th, Fauci reiterated the virus is, quote, very, very low risk to the United States. I'm not attacking Dr. Fauci. He was working with Chinese lies as spread by the World Health Organization. And, of course, I had him on my show on January 27th, two days later. You had people like BuzzFeed publishing a headline, don't worry about the coronavirus, worry about the flu. Oh, CNN was saying that on March the 4th. We'll get to that. January 31st, Vox tweeted, is this going to be a deadly pandemic? No. Same day, Washington Post published a piece with the headline, how our brains make coronavirus seem scarier than it is. Now, the president, he doesn't seek the advice, thankfully, from the Washington Post, the media mob, Vox, any of them. Because 10 days after the first case emerged in this country, your president, President Donald J. Trump, made the boldest decision to ban travel to and from China. He declared a public health emergency. It is incalculable, incalculable how many untold thousands of Americans did not contract this disease and untold American lives were saved. By the way, he got nothing but criticism, racism, xenophobia, fear-mongering, hysteria. This decisive action, though, 10 days after the first case, it bought us time. It saved us from an immeasurable amount of suffering. The mob and the media, they were outraged. Fake news, CNN accusing the president of using the coronavirus to spread fear and racism and xenophobia. I told you, they're just echoing quid pro quo Joe. Washington Post, early February, their headline was this. Why we should be wary of an aggressive government response to coronavirus. February 4th, what was Nancy Pelosi doing? Remember, she was doing the little pre-tears. Then she could have her public, well, temper tantrum, preordained, of course, for the President's State of the Union address. But the cameras, by the way, the President that night was talking about COVID-19. She was busy ripping. And get this, February 5th, your beloved New York Times, the same paper accusing me of downplaying the virus when just the opposite is true, and I will prove it, ran this headline. Who says it's not safe to travel to China? New York Times was advising you to go over to China. That was dumb. The coronavirus travel ban is unjust, they said, and doesn't work anyway. In two separate Democratic debates in February, hmm, 
No, not one candidate on stage mentioned the coronavirus. Not one. Meanwhile, New York City's health commissioner was also downplaying the threat of the virus. Take a look. That the risk to New Yorkers for coronavirus is low and that our preparedness as a city is very high. There is no reason not to take the subway, not to take the bus, not to go out to your favorite restaurant. Now, let's fast forward to February 24th. Now, remember, Trump put the travel ban in effect almost a month earlier. Okay, we're in the middle of a public health emergency. There's Nancy Pelosi showing up, publicity stunt, crowded streets, San Francisco's Chinatown, hugging, shaking hands with her supporters and encouraging everyone to go and socially undistance. February 26th, yep, the Times ran another unhinged op-ed entitled, Let's Call It Trump Virus. Why does the New York Times doesn't like me? If you're feeling awful, you know who to blame. In March, fake news CNN said that calling the coronavirus Wuhan or China coronavirus was racist, even though fake news Acosta himself used the exact same terminology in January. On March the 2nd, there's Mayor of New York, Conrad de Blasio, encouraging New Yorkers to go out on the town and catch a play. Same day, Governor Cuomo said, well, excuse our arrogance, but this disease will not be as bad in New York as other countries. It was worse. And on March the 4th, fake news CNN, Anderson Cooper, is what he had to say about the virus. Let's pay attention to his timeline. Half of the people in America do not get a flu shot. And the flu right now is far deadlier. So if you're freaked out at all about the coronavirus, you should be more concerned about the flu. And you can actually do something about it and get a flu shot. The facts on the ground are the facts on the ground. They did change at different times. We have to concede, even with Dr. Fauci, February, February 29th was saying the risk is still low. March 9th, Dr. Fauci even said for healthy people, they could still go on a cruise ship. But that statement never made it into this weekend's New York Times hit piece against this program. They hate all things Trump, all things conservative, and they hate Sean Hannity likes Donald Trump and says so on radio and TV. Neither did they watch my timeline, which, by the way, I spent an entire hour uh, going over with one of their top-notch fake news reporters. And it's been posted on Hannity.com, I believe, since March the 18th. We had Dr. Fauci on this program as early as January 27th, discussing the serious nature of the virus. Uh, the next day, I, I talked to a panel of doctors. February 10th, I had Dr. Fauci back on to talk about what about these people that are asymptomatic and the spread of the disease. It's all there, Hannity. You can see it all, Hannity.com, actually on Hannity Twitter. We've got it all there in print. For all you liars, all of you involved in smears, slander, besmirchment, all of you character assassins, you can all read. You might actually learn something. We praise the president's bold action to halt travel from China. That was a game changer. This has been the biggest medical mobilization in the history of this country. Okay, everyone that needed a ventilator got a ventilator, not because any state had any of them. Hospitals were built in under a week, including the Javits Center. The Navy ships were sent. The ventilators were sent, the masks, the gowns, the gloves, the respirators, all sent. Record time. Never seen anything like it. Lives were saved. None of that made it into the fake news New York's libel slander Times article. That's because so-called journalists who work there, they're not interested in the truth. That is a fact. Instead, they care about 
bludgeoning enemies. For them, enemy number one is not me. That would be President Trump. Enemy number two is anybody and everybody, including voters, that support President Trump. New York Times is not alone. Look at how fake news CNN and, yes, conspiracy television, Roswell, Rachel Maddow's MSDNC covered this serious virus over the past few weeks. Take a look in the middle of a national emergency. Like a political moron. The president is sounding very uh, Baghdad Bob-like in the way that he's uh, signing blame to everybody but himself. There are tens of thousands of people who will die in the country or have some of them have already died. More are still going to die Mm -hmm. because of Donald Trump's incompetence. Here we have a president who is exploiting a national crisis to move forward his own agenda, his own revenge, his own profit. The president determined to rewrite the history of his early and reprehensibly irresponsible response to this virus. He's still acting reckless and unmoored. Here in the United States, we are still not doing what we need to do to fight this deadly virus because of a complete lack of leadership. Do you think there's already, do you think there is blood on the president's hands considering the slow response? Wow. For the people you just saw this virus, yep, unfortunately, they politicized it pretty early on. Uh, One more opportunity because they got everything else wrong about Donald Trump, Russia, Ukraine, impeachment. Never investigated the biggest abuse of power corruption scandal in history that we got right, they got wrong. I'm not a big Hannity watcher. Uh, I used to watch it back in the day when it was Hannity and Combs, because once again, anybody's been on the show for a while. I watched shows he had both sides, Hannity and Combs, Morning Joe, before he started fucking Mika. It was actually entertaining, but um, that's a long soundbite, but I'm going to let him defend himself, because that is the craziest bullshit ever. If that's the case, then Chris Cuomo should be held responsible for murders also. And every time a white person gets beat up in America, Don Lemon should be held responsible. He's, he calls all white people terrorists. Hell, the whole media says we're all fucking terrorists, rapists, Nazis. It's defamation of character. We should be able to follow lawsuits. That's what I'm saying. So let's move into our Biden stuff. It's going to be brief. Uh, the big push now is that fucking lump of shit from Georgia who lost Stacey Abrams. So here's a happy thought for you, Stacey. A lot of people are looking to you as a possible vice presidential pick for Joe Biden. Now, I love it. You said you would be an excellent running mate. It's refreshing to hear such confidence. I love it. I would be great at the job, and I want it, you said. So tell us why you would be an excellent running running mate, even though it's pretty obvious to me. <laughs> you know, well, Stacey, this is something that, that is concerning to me because Biden has committed to a woman as vice president, but has stopped short of committing to a woman of color. How important is it, do you think, for Biden to make that commitment? And do you think that not choosing uh, a woman of color, a black woman, actually, is a slap in the face to the black female voters who are credited with really reviving his candidacy? Uh, Atlanta blew it when they didn't when they didn't make you governor. I just had to say that. Let's talk about the VP slot. Joe Biden's looking for a VP, I know you've heard. There's an article out this morning that says Stacey Abrams would be the right pick for him. I'm assuming you agree with that. Why do you think that you'd be a good choice for Joe Biden? Well, I just want to say this. That's a great nuts and bolts answer because everybody knows you're extremely qualified. I'm looking for something about Stacey Abrams, the person. Why she's a good, why she's a good choice. And have you had any talks at all with the Biden 
team. All right, Stacey Abrams, I'm hoping this is not our last conversation. Something tells me it isn't. Always good to see you. Thank you, ma'am. She's a fucking celebrity. It's just fucking sad. Then this shit broke, and this is just typical Demo- Democrat, man. This this just cracks me up. The story goes, there are plenty of new stories back when there were 47 people running for the Democratic presidential nomination that it was the most diverse field ever. Not a clown car, like when there were 16 Republicans. Then the Democrats spoke at the polls and narrowed down the field to two white men in their 70s after rejecting the Native American woman who's not a Native American. Now the Democrats have the whitest of candidates who reminisces about how black children amuse themselves by rubbing his blonde leg hair in a swimming pool. A new poll reported that 49% of Democrats polled said they're bothered by the fact that their nominee is a white man in his 70s. Whites seem to care a lot more than blacks and Hispanic who don't seem nearly as bothered. Maybe black voters still think Biden and his boss are keeping Mitt Romney from putting them back in chains. Because Biden said that, folks. Steve Kornacki, he's from MSDNC. That means this is a super liberal poll, because all his polls are super liberal. In a new poll, 41% of Dems say it bothers them that their nominee will be a white male in his 70s, and 59% say, say it doesn't by race. White bothers 49, doesn't bother 51. Black bothers 28, doesn't 72. Hispanic 30, doesn't bother 70. Supporters of Dem candidates bothered that nominee will be white male in his 70s. Biden supporters... Bothers, 21, doesn't, 79. Sanders, 42% are bothered by it. Buttleg, 57 are bothered by it. And wouldn't you believe it, Warren, 73% of Warren supporters are bothered that their candidate's a white guy. This is my great awakening data point ever. White Democrats almost twice as likely as black ones to be bothered by the fact that Joe Biden is wife. White Jessica Single says. My favorite is that people that support a woman who lied about her ethnicity and is less Cherokee Indian than me are offended by a white person. You were supporting one. Where is your self-awareness? Andrew Follett, what's amazing about this is that white lips find it way more disturbing than minorities do, further proving that the actual ethnic minorities don't care much for identity politics and that pretty much the whole thing is virtue signaling for rich white liberals. Isn't that a fact? Responses without people. I just lumped them together. Universities have done a brilliant job of convincing white people to feel guilty about their race. Pretty definitive evidence that the Democratic Party appeals to white guilt. Isn't that true? White liberals are probably the most pathetic group of people in this country. Aren't these the same minions that didn't get behind a woman of color? They had a woman of color. The survey didn't ask Harris supporters. That's a black person. Last I checked. LOL reminds me of Latinx. Only woke white people in AOC use it. No one uses it in real life. 73% 73% of Warren supporters being annoyed by not having a minority candidate to vote for. These people of color aren't race conscious enough. Somebody needs to explain systemic racism to them. <laughs> Why can't blacks and Hispanics be aware of the racial issues as we enlightened whites are? How do we, how to be offended on behalf of others? A triest, a triest on the white modern liberal. 
We already knew this. White liberal women are more than happy to be offended on behalf of people who don't actually give a fuck. White liberals are the only demographic group with an out-group bias, meaning they hate themselves, a trait only unique to them. Rich liberal asshats will let themselves be bothered by anything their overlords tell them to be bothered about. And that's so true. I mean, it's a cause du jour. My daughter is living proof. She will fucking Facebook shit she doesn't, she's never even spoke of before because that's what she's told to Facebook. So it looks like rich liberal whites are most offended. Only solution is to totally ignore and negate any opinion rich liberal whites have on race of a presidential candidate. Problem solved. And then somebody else. Sit this one out, Karen. <laughs> somebody tweeted this. Where you learn to judge people by the shape and shade of their genitalia. Post-grad, 58%. College grad, 49%. Some college, 41%. High school, 24%. We just don't care. These numbers are pretty crazy. White dibs are split 50-50 on how much it bothers them that the candidate's white. Black and Hispanics don't give a fuck. Why are white liberals so hung up on race, but minorities aren't? The key word may be male more than white. Lots of anti-patriarchy, intersectional feminists in the affluent white liberal community. Low self-esteem, resulting in self-hatred, that always shows up as hatred for the nation. And that's true. Have you ever talked to somebody? There it is. I mean, look at Paige in Oregon. I loved her. But her true colors came out. I wasn't attacking a transgender person. I posted a joke meme. She lost her shit on it. Just lost her shit. That's what they do. Jesse Kelly. Theory. Joe Biden is never going to debate Donald Trump in person. His campaign knows his brain is hummus and Trump would destroy him. You know, that I don't believe that theory, but I will tell you this. Why have we not heard about debates? He is the candidate. We've heard nothing. Then the big whammy comes. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitner, who's a leading candidate, well, she was, until they start carting out Abrams. And this poll is probably going to make Biden pick somebody of color. Awards huge coronavirus contract to Democrat consulting firm. Yeah, a consulting firm. You heard it. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer has awarded the state contract to trace and track coronavirus victims to Democratic consulting firm that worked for her 2019 campaign. Contact tracing is used to find out who's got the virus and who they've been in contact with. The massive amount of data this generates would help in finding out who should be tested and where resources to fight the spread of coronavirus need to go. But she's not using it for that. You know she's not. It's going to be political, too, for so she can hand that database to Biden and show, look at me, Daddy, I can do a lot of stuff for you and become the and can also provide information used to elected politicians. Whitmer awarded a contract for contract tracing in the states to Every Action Van, an arm of the Democratic data heavyweight NGP Van. Essentially, Whitmer had given ability of NGP Van to develop a massive voter database. The company says it won't use this data collected in Michigan for political purposes, which is a total fucking lie. If you believe that, I can tell you. I could sell you Manica Bridge for song. States across country have begun contact tracing operations and hope that wide-scale interviews will unlock crucial information and prevent additional infections. But Whitmer appears to be the first governor to deploy a group that typically foment, focuses on politics to help in the task. She did it on purpose. The story broke. 
Stu Sandler, Livingston County Commissioner West Nagakarki, discovering shocking news that Governor Whitmer in Michigan hired NGP van to collect health data on Michigan. This forced the state of Michigan to admit this. Having a political data firm collect health data is troubling. Contact tracing is proven health public health strategy that involves identifying those affected on COVID-19 and interviewing friends, blah, 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 blah. Country Smug, this would be the biggest news story today. It was not. Country Smug again, people in Michigan, it's time to sue Whitmer and NGP van for everything they're worth. Your medical records are considered confidential information under federal policy rules established by HIPAA. Yeah, he brought the HIPAA out on him because it's true. Then, Mayor Blilled, uh by the end of the day, Stories started breaking that they fired him because it had nothing to do with coronavirus. She was just doing it to data mine for the election. This sounds so familiar to 2016, the Steele dossier. Do you remember? It was a Democratic data company. Yeah, it sounds the same. Then there's this last thing before we do the shills, and then we'll go into the Harvard, because I was supposed to be in college crazy for the next podcast, but we're going to do it today. Bill de Blasio, I can't tell you when we'll be able to host the cultural events and parades again, but I can tell you, WHO, our first parade will be for, when the time is right, New York City will honor our healthcare workers and first responders with a ticker tape parade up the Canyon of Heroes, and the entire world is saying this is the dumbest fucking shit ever. But you watch it. It'll be led by PPFA, the Women's March, Black Lives Matter, anti-Trump. They'll burn shit down because it's New York City. It's what they do. Here's the media sound bites for shilling for Biden. My favorite, Biden saw coronavirus coming like a steamroller. Yeah, he did. That's why he never spoke about it. You'll have a slight break, and we'll go into the Harvard Sound bites because as we find out, most of the money did not go to big businesses or to small businesses. It went to big businesses. They gobbled that fucking shit up and Harvard was one of them. You know, what you, what you see here is Joe Biden. Uh, is careful with his words. You see some of the latest ads that have been rolled out, which are really strong, which show clearly, clearly that Joe Biden saw this coming. He was writing about this in USA Today in January. January. He was concerned. He saw it coming like a a steamroller coming in the direction of the United States. He was concerned. He called on the White House, the president, the administration to take it seriously. They did not. So this This is is plain and simple. In the travel ban he brags about, Trump let in 40,000 travelers from China into America after he signed it. Not exactly airtight. Look around. 22 million Americans are out of work, and we have more officially reported cases and deaths than any other country. Donald Trump left this country unprepared and unprotected for the worst public health and economic crisis in our lifetime. And now we're paying the price. All the negative ads in the world can't change the truth. Joining our conversation, political strategist Steve Schmidt and NBC News uh, correspondent Heidi Presbella. Steve Schmidt, it's a devastating political ad because it's all true. Well, it's entirely true, and no amount of negative ads, as the Biden ad says, is going to change the truth about Donald Trump's incompetency 
at the response to what the ad correctly says is the worst public health and economic crises of our lifetime. And the simple truth, Nicole, is this, is Donald Trump ran for president of the United States on two propositions. One, I alone can fix it. And two, I'm going to make America great again. Well, it's three years on. We're slightly under 200 days from the election. More than 40,000 Americans are dead. This didn't have to be so. It's so because of the ineptitude of the White House response, the constant denial, the constant downplaying of this, of the danger of it, pushing it away, his serial unpreparedness and dishonesty with the American people about it. And now great suffering has been unleashed in this country. There's more to come. The economic distress will make the unemployment numbers higher than the Great Depression. We're going to wipe out millions of small businesses in this country as none of the federal programs are working like they're supposed to work. And so four years on from the promise of I'll make America great again and I alone can fix it, we can survey now the wreckage and the magnitude of the disaster in this country that has been wrought by the Trump presidency. And we see the consequences of putting an ill-tempered reality show television host who lacks the mental the moral and the intellectual skills and judgments to be the commander in chief of the most powerful nation on earth. And it does go, it should not go without mentioning that as we look around the world and we look at the response of nearly every other industrialized country, the United States response is the worst. Uh, the ineptitude of the federal mm -hmm. government uh, shows everybody around the world from ally to adversary uh, what a clown show. American governance has become in the third decade of the 21st century. Hey, Julia, what, what is this story with Harvard? You know, President Trump went after Harvard basically claiming that they had sort of sucked up some of the funds that were supposed to be for small businesses. Harvard has refuted that. What's the truth here? It's a total fabrication. Facts first. The president was completely wrong. Harvard did not steal money from small businesses. Let's be clear, there was a separate multi-billion dollar fund set up for educational institutions. Now, Harvard does happen to be the richest college in the world. It has a $40 billion endowment. So you can understand perhaps some questions being asked here. Two things. Harvard have said, and perhaps we could question the timing, we don't know, that all this money is going to go to their students that come from low to moderate income families. Forbes says that's around 16% of their students. The second thing is an endowment is there to make sure that this university, this college, lasts forever. It's not like a piggy bank, mm. unfortunately, that you can raid. So I think a better comparison here is are there colleges out there that also have high levels of low and moderate income students that didn't get money or still need money. That's the comparison. But the president's just making it up as he goes along. Really helpful. Thank you very much yes. for all the information. Julia Chatterley, Christine Romans. This broke about the same time we found companies worth $100 million had got their dick beaters all over that small business loan stuff. And Harvard got some of it. Trump to tell Harvard to pay back the money. President Donald Trump said Tuesday and personally requested Harvard University return $9 million was allocated as part of the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economy Economic Security Act passed by Congress. At a Tuesday White House Coronavirus Task Force press conference, reporter asked Treasury Secretary Steve Munchen, see I was two words ahead, so I said trickery, 
uh, it would be Quest Big Business ending up with the stimulus money for the Paycheck Protection Program, which was intended for small business. Going to request that Trump, who was standing next to Munchen, Harvard's going to pay back that money, Trump continued, referring to the Higher Education Emergency Relief Fund, which is separate from the PPP, although both are part of the CARES Act. They should be taking it. Harvard's going to. You have a number of them. I'm not going to mention any other names, but when I saw Harvard, they have one of the largest endowments anywhere in the country, maybe in the world. As campus reform previously reported, Harvard has said it would distribute all the allotted $9 million to students rather than half of the sum as required by law. The eight Ivy League schools combined are set to receive $61.5 million. Conservative lawmakers outraged over Harvard cut. Thomas Massey, Harvard's has billions in their endowment, kicked students off campus this semester. Harvard, a researcher, chair of chemical biological department, recorded DOJ failed to disclose payments from fucking China. Greta Van Sustern, you shouldn't, you just can't make this stuff up. Below the Harvard own magazine, $298 million surplus, surplus, plus $9.62 billion in fundraising, which they describe as happy result, and yet take $9 million from struggling taxpayer. From the Harvard Crimson, $290 million up from $196 million the prior year, according to the university annual fiscal report for the fiscal period ending June 30th, 2019, published in October. The surplus is realized from fiscal 2014 through the most recent year now, total $769 million. The happy result of proceeds from the $9.62 billion Harvard campaign, a continued benign U.S. economic environment and internal spending restraints that cushion surely the envy of other institutions of higher education. Yeah, that's a lot of fucking money. Ted Cruz. This is ridiculous. Taxpayer relief funds should go to those in real need. Harvard University has $41 billion endowment, the largest in the world, but any other way, Harvard endowment is $13 million per student or $171 million per faculty member. Senator Joe Hockley of Missouri also shared his thoughts. Why is Harvard, with its multi-billion dollar endowment, much of it built with help from taxpayer money, getting bailout? One of my senators... Uh, representatives, if our priority, uh, Mark Green, sorry, I fucked that all up, uh, Mark Green from Tennessee, if our priority here is saving lives, and it is, and sending $9 million in taxpayer dollars to Harvard, which has a $40 billion endowment, has nothing to do with that mission. And it's true. Supposedly, Harvard's going to pay it back. But the worst part is all these small businesses are sucking for money, and nobody monitored it. I put that on Treasury. And the way these things are written. It should have been not Jim Bobbed in the middle of the fucking night because we're trying to get money for fucking abortions in Africa for the left and all this other stupid fucking shit. I mean, it's a perfect time to play AOC. Listen to this dumbass. Fuck, the soundbite's trash. But she's talking about everybody getting a fucking socialist amount of money, standard living allowance. This is what happens, man. We we play dick dance with everything. Everything. Here is a quick soundbite on climate. And once again, they're still on this new kick. We don't need to reopen because bears and shit. Ahead on this Earth Day, we'll show you the rapid and amazing environmental improvements taking place during the pandemic, what it tells us about creating a healthier planet. From wildlife to the environment, I will explore the benefits 
of those shelter-in-place orders across the country and around the world. We do have some positive news on this Earth Day 2020. The pandemic lockdown has taken about 80% of passenger cars off local roads. IQ Air's data shows a resulting 31% reduction in air pollution. The world is suddenly learning what can happen if humans stop polluting the environment. But if things go back to normal, a week from now, that'll be a distant memory. The air will be just like it would have been. When the world finally heals and our societies come back, is there a way to make these changes permanent without hurting our economy? We can have a strong economy, but improve our air quality, and they're taking steps in that direction. We can reduce our emissions of greenhouse gases by switching from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Uh, we know that wind and solar work. We know they're economic. We know that they're growing very rapidly. There are many people see this as a major reset for humanity and the planet. I hope we're all listening and get the lesson. The coronavirus lockdown has quickly and dramatically changed our environment. Less foot traffic, less waste, less energy consumption, allowing certain animals to thrive and impacting the Earth's atmosphere as well. What, what kind of reductions have we seen? We've seen reductions in greenhouse gas emissions, those gases that contribute to climate change. While these signs of renewal are encouraging, climatologists say the change in the air is only temporary and not nearly enough. When the world finally heals and our societies come back, is there a way to make these changes permanent without hurting our economy? And guys, we're actually proud to say that NBC News has made reporting on climate change a priority. And so uh, we are now happy to be joining and covering, joining this group called Covering Climate Now. It's a global journalism initiative that's committed to even more and better coverage. It's a story that isn't going to be going away anytime soon. We're going to be there to report on it, including our NBC News climate unit. So we're very excited to announce this alliance coming up. That is fantastic. Fantastic mm-hmm. news, buddy. That is fantastic news. And this was also in our lighter our news and social media nuggets, but I'm going to cover it now. Uh, the big thing is we've suspended immigration for a while because of COVID, a normal thing. But just like with the travel ban, these same people are telling you you're a piece of shit because you protested because you want to go back to work because you're about to lose your house and you're eating fucking spam because you live in a state with hardly any cases. They are now just up in fucking arms that Trump wants to stop it. It's all racism again. These people talk out of both sides of their neck. Since the outbreak, the White House has been using the virus to justify increased restrictions on immigration. They've basically been working up to this. A move like this, though, would be absolutely unprecedented and would essentially shut down the legal immigration system. And one thing is certain, this is definitely going to be challenged in court. Opponents are calling this xenophobic. This morning, the president's hardline immigration supporters, they are praising the move, but opponents are calling it xenophobic. Well, David, you're right. There were strict orders. There are strict orders already in place, but even a temporary pause would be unprecedented in this country. Look, here's what we know. There will be some exceptions, exemptions, exemptions rather, for healthcare workers, agriculture workers, people like that. But you heard the president say this is about protecting American jobs. He also says this is about protecting Americans from the coronavirus. But David, we've got to tell you, America has more confirmed coronavirus cases than anywhere else in the world. We should also note that the number of immigrants who are on the front line 
lines in this fight right now. One in four doctors, one in three nurses are immigrants. David, opponents say that this is a clear example of the president using this virus to further his hardline immigration policies. This one sure to end up in the courts, David. Nor the president announced that he will suspend immigration into the U.S. for 60 days. But this will only apply to people seeking permanent residency. Now, this is a move that will likely appeal to his base, but the immigration process has effectively been shut down for the past month after key offices closed because of coronavirus. The president said this order is still being written, but he expects to sign it tomorrow. Lester, President Trump announced tonight that his new immigration executive order, once it takes effect, will suspend immigration for 60 days. He also says it'll only apply to immigrants seeking permanent residency. It will not apply to those entering on a temporary basis. It's still unclear when he'll sign it. But even without an executive order, immigration during the coronavirus crisis has already slowed dramatically, with the administration imposing broad travel restrictions and suspending immigrant visas. Critics say the order order is a political dog whistle aimed at energizing the president's well, David, you're right. There were strict orders. There are strict orders already in place, but even a temporary pause would be unprecedented in this country. Look, here's what we know. There will be some exceptions, exemptions, exemptions rather, for healthcare workers, agriculture workers, people like that. But you heard the president say this is about protecting American jobs. He also says this is about protecting Americans from the coronavirus. But David, we've got to tell you, America has more confirmed coronavirus cases than anywhere else in the world. We should also note that the number of immigrants who are on the front line in this fight right now. One in four doctors, one in three nurses are immigrants. David, opponents say that this is a clear example of the president using this virus to further his hardline immigration policies. This one sure to end up in the courts, David. Nor the president announced that he will suspend immigration into the U.S. for 60 days. But this will only apply to people seeking permanent residency. Now, this is a move that will likely appeal to his base, but the immigration process has effectively been shut down for the past month after key offices closed because of coronavirus. The president said this order is still being written, but he expects to sign it tomorrow. Lester, President Trump announced tonight that his new immigration executive order, once it takes effect, will suspend immigration for 60 days. He also says it'll only apply to immigrants seeking permanent residency. It will not apply to those entering on a temporary basis. It's still unclear when he'll sign it. But even without an executive order, immigration during the coronavirus crisis has already slowed dramatically, with the administration imposing broad travel restrictions and suspending immigrant visas. Critics say the order is a political dog whistle aimed at energizing the president's base. When you hear these sound bites, once again, you just go, God damn, you fucking people are hypocrites. You're saying that he's killing everybody, so he does states to, uh, steps to save people, and he's a racist. It, it just shows who you are, and the problem is, that was everybody. MSNBC, CNN, PBS, ABC, NBC, everybody lost it. And then you talk about plot against America, and this is why. The le- to the left, HBO's herring Nazi alt-history series illustrates fragility of democracy. To say we're going through difficult times right now is an understatement, but that's nothing compared to the disaster liberals believe we're facing from Donald Trump's presidency. In fact, it's such a disaster that I have to construct an entire miniseries to warn us about it. Just listen to the people behind HBO's A Plot Against America. Ultimately, April 20th's Part 6 episode following the plot of Philip Roth's book of the same name. Namely, the series ends its controversial and xenophobic President Charles Lindbergh being kidnapped and killed by Nazis enforcers looking to blackmail him to enact Nazi policies. However, the show does take one significant difference direction upon ending. 
In the book, Lindbergh Disappearance and Death Leads to Another Special Election During Which FDR is Reelected. Meanwhile, the show ends on a more ambiguous, ambiguous note as to who the next president will be, especially as minorities are blocked from booths and ballot boxes are secretly burned. See, it's, they live in this other world. They just do. The new ending is clearly more foreboding and for the attitude of the people in the show, that's likely on purpose. In an interview with Medium, executive producer Nina K. Noble commented, it was important to us and to HBO to air this show in early 2020 during the run-up to the election as it illustrates so well the fragility of democracy and the consequences of not protecting it. Series creator David Simon went one step further. The question stands as to where the country is going from here. And I think to not acknowledge that we're doing this in 2020 with an election upon us, probably the most important election of my life would be irresponsible. This is like Handmaid's Tale. They watch this shit and everything becomes it. And unknown to most of us who never read Philip Roth... That's why when he said America first, make America great, and his policies were America first policies, they all went back to this goddamn Lindbergh shit that none of us knew about. Story continues, um, the main priority here was the 2020 election above anything else. Even book accuracy. Of course, that thought process existed long before the show's finale. Prior to the final episode, series actress Zoe Kazan made comparisons between the show and Trump's handling of COVID. She claimed, I think we're seeing it now, even more than when we shot the show, like the ways that Asian Americans are being treated right now and our president getting on stage and saying Chinese virus. Things like the feeling like something that could have come straight out of the book Considering plenty of other media sites use the term Chinese virus besides our president, I doubt we're on the path to a Nazi America. Unfortunately, that sentiment was lost on viewers either who are eager to compare Lindbergh's Nazi sympathies to Trump following Trump's announcement of temporary suspending immigration in the United States. The comparison only grew worse. Below, a deadline senior editor and Chicago Tribune editorial board member reacts. If you had any doubt the plot against America was a piercing tale for our times, this hateful stab in the heart of democracy just rips apart the illusion. (laughs) And what it was, Lisa Weber, when the real-life slithers right under the door and it's the herring finale, a plot against America. In light of the attack from the invisible enemy, as well as the need to protect the jobs of our great American citizens, I will be signing an executive order to temporarily suspend immigration in the United States. You see where they live? This is handmade. This is how the Women's March happened in 2016. They watched a TV show. They believe cartoons and TVs are real. All these shows, and they go fucking batshit crazy. Article ends, we are not Nazi Germany, Germany, much as leftists would like us to believe, and one day we'll overcome this pandemic issue despite liberals cheering for an economic crash. Shows like The Plot Against America would have us believe that America has fallen, but history has shown us we've only begun to fight. Then you search America first, short history of America first. The phrase used by the President Trump has been linked to anti-Semitism during World War II. This was 2017, the article. Then you go to the Heritage Foundation, the truth about the American First Movement. 
Only days after America entering World War II, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill offered his new American allies some advice. War is a constant struggle and must be waged day to day. It is only with some difficulty and within limits that provisions for the future can be made. I should have put my glasses on. I didn't. And seen. It was an axiom that Charles Lindbergh, the famed aviator and the most recognizable spokesman on the American First Committee, would have agreed with. Right up until the eve of Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, Lindbergh, the American First Committee, and cadre of non-interventionist leaders in the Congress spearheaded the political opposition to effort to trim the official U.S. stance on neutrality in the war. Although the term America First has been resurrected in 2016 presidential campaign, its historical origins have been buried under years of American politics and sketchy history. The American First Movement has been described as isolationist, anti-interventionist, anti-Semitic, xenophobic, and a bunch of know-nothings. The narrative fails on several levels. Like any mass political movement, America First was an amalgamation of groups and fellow travelers who sometimes shared little more in common than opposition to war. The ranks of the anti-war movement included pacifists and communists, wild-haired liberals, straight-laced conservatives, and everything in between. The anti-war movement was far from homogenous. For instance, in January 1941, Lindbergh issued a press statement distinguishing himself from No Foreign Wars Committee headed by journalists Vern Marshall and pro-Nazi businessman William Rhodes Davis. Lindbergh had helped the group get started, but then cut ties after Marshall violated Volatile leadership and vitriolic attacks, including the swipes at Lindbergh and other leaders in the American First Committee. Further, why the America First crowd <clears throat> could be fractious, it was hardly a fringe political movement. Right up to the U.S. entry in World War II, the majority of Americans supported the group's basic aim. Even as war looked more likely to Lindbergh argued it was not what America wanted, the pall of war seems to hang over us today. More and more people are simply giving into it. Many say we're... <clears throat> As good as it already, the attitude of the country seems to waver back and forth. Our greatest hope lies in the fact that 85% of people in America, according to the latest polls, are against intervention. Right up until the day of Pearl Harbor, many Americans sided with Lindbergh. Most importantly, the core of the American First Movement was not ideological isolationist or anti-military. Lindbergh, in particular, based his opposition to the war on strategic assessment of how best to weather the great storm. In fact, he wanted a significant American military buildup, an expert, excerpt, expert in air power. He believed that combination of beefed-up air defense and robust strategic bombing force could keep the enemy at bay. There was an honest debate to be had about whether America could fight at all. Not surprisingly, though, it became, like many political debates through the ages, highly partisan, bitter, and personal. Lindbergh was accused of being a Nazi sympathizer. Meanwhile, some congressional leaders, like Senator Gerald Nye from North Dakota, an avid American firster, firster, charged the Jews in Hollywood have been hell-bent on dragging American to war by making films like Sergeant York. But the biggest problem with the anti-interventionist case wasn't the vitriolic rhetoric, but the way the war evolved. And it undercut the strategy rationale of Lindbergh's vision of continental defense. By 1941, Lindbergh's argument was on demonstrably shaky ground. Months before Pearl Harbor, it was becoming quite apparent that if the United States had to fight against multiple foes without any major allies, even just defending the Western Hemisphere or the U.S., options favored an anti-interventionist like Lindbergh, was increasingly impractical. Serious military planners in the service had already discounted such options. 
On reflection, considering the global vision of Axis power that was the right call, the Japanese High Command land disposal plan alone called for Tokyo to control East Asia, the Pacific Ocean, and part of the Western Hemisphere, including lands in Latin America and the Caribbean. It's difficult to imagine how the United States could have endured a free and independent nation surrounded by hostile powers that controlled most of the Earth's population, productive resources, and major trade routes. That said, it's worth remembering that Lindbergh's argument were at their core strategic ones, not a fixed formula for the America should do. Lindbergh was just interested in determining a course of action that put the interests of America first. Arguably, he did what good strategic leaders should do, try to do the right thing for the right reasons. The opposite of Lindbergh was not President Roosevelt or Prime Minister Churchill, both of whom shared Lindbergh's passion for determining how to guide their nations in weathering the great storm of war, but strategists like Obama who have fixed course of how to deal with the world, regardless of action of adversaries, the input of allies, or what conditions on the ground dictate. Lindbergh was no slave to doctrine. Days after Pearl Harbor, he wrote in his diary, I can see nothing to do under these circumstances except to fight, and if I had been in Congress, I certainly would have voted for a declaration of war. Many of the leaders of the America First Committee volunteered to serve in the armed forces. Lindbergh managed to find ways to contribute to the war effort, even flying combat missions in the South Pacific. In some ways, <clears throat> Lindbergh's anti-interventionism was a piece with George Washington's warning in his farewell presidential address of the need to avoid entangling alliances. Each man was arguing for the strategic option that he thought right for the time, not an immutable rule of foreign policy. America's next president will face daunting challenges, particularly blah, 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 and they're talking this was done in the time when the book came out. But you don't get that now because it's been written by liberals that he was Hitler's right-hand man. He accepted a war award from a country we were all kowtowing to and stepping around because nobody knew they were killing the Jews. Only Jewish people at that time, as Philip Roth and his father, they knew people were getting fucked up. A lot of people didn't really know until Patton opened up a camp and then the shit hit the fan. But you're not going to see that. And once again, it's a fucking TV show written by a severely damaged human being who hates everybody because of what happened to his family. And he has every right in the world. He lost a lot of family in the Holocaust. But to say that Lindbergh was a Nazi is a stretch. But that's what they've done. And they made a book and a movie, and they only did it, just like Handmaid's Tale, to get Trump. So, our next review is The Longest War, which I saw on Showtime. We're going to just cover it briefly. Here's the trailer. Soviet forces invaded Afghanistan. Afghanistan. From Afghanistan. We're not going to repeat that mistake. America's longest war. I could win that war in a week. I'll never feel like an Afghanistan expert. The war is so complex. People were ready for the fight over who would claim Afghanistan. If President Clinton had killed Osama bin Laden, there wouldn't have been a 9-11. What would the world be like? That hospital bombing was devastating. A lot of innocent civilians were killed. Every year there was this sense that if we did X, Y, and Z, we could finish the war. You can see in their eyes the weariness and frustration because it's their country. 
We never wore burqas in my entire life, and we have to wear burqas. Terrorists said, don't scream, then they started shooting. That is what life has become, just hoping you can outrun whatever's coming. It's very easy getting in there. Getting out is immensely difficult. Longest War Film Review. Sobering documentary recounts decades of destruction in Afghanistan. Comprehensive and clear, Greg Barker's film tells the story of U.S. involvement that is infuriating at times, but falling at others, mostly just sad. If you're looking for some old-fashioned, nonpartisan outrage where anger or sadness isn't dependent on political leanings or party affiliation, you can find it in The Longest War. That's a fucking total lie. That's a total fucking lie. The part I saw, that it's all partisan. The film is the section of U.S. military and involvement in Afghanistan, the longest-running war in U.S. history, and a morass with enough blame to go around to leaders of all affiliations. That much is made clear in the first few minutes of film when a reverse timeline shows the last seven presidents, Trump, Obama, Bush, Clinton, Bush, Reagan, and Carter, all promising things didn't happen. Comprehensive and clear, the film tells the story of a U.S. involvement that is infuriating at times, befuddling at others, mostly just sad. My heart hurts for these people, says CIA targeter Lisa Maddox of the Afghans at one point, because I just don't see how this ends. This film executive producers are Homeland creator Alex Gonza and Howard Gibbon, who have set their show's final season on Afghanistan with the longest war premiering after their series, Peninsulum, I can never say that word, episode. It'll be the second movie directed by Barker to premiere in three days. Sergio and, uh, I don't give a fuck. Um, the inside story will have a blow in the final year about a former guy. His storytelling style is methodical, blah, 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 and the patience and, uh, over the year. The U.S. worked over Pakistan. Da, 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 I'm trying to find the lady's fucking name. I thought I had it in this goddamn article. Ah, fuck it. You heard a goddamn name. And I'm going to tell you, when she goes into a screen of going outside the wire, and the things I've seen, and I got PTSD, I just stared at my TV and started throwing fucking shit. It is exactly what is wrong with our goddamn media. They all fucking think, I've been there, man. They're Dylan McKay from 90210 in a fucking combat uniform playing Charlie Sheen in fucking Platoon. It just makes me want to fucking vomit. Yeah, you've been over there. But you're not in this shit. You weren't fucking in the two-way rifle range. And when you talk like that, vets just look at you like, shut the fuck up. You went over there, and she even plays with my kid, was worried, and I was scared. You went over there to make your bones. You didn't go over there for the good of the Afghan people, U.S. soldiers, or anything. And the simple fact is, there's yet to be, other than Restrepo, maybe... 12 Strong, I could say that was done. Peter Berg did a good job on that. And Lone Survivor. Most of the shit we've had on documentaries and movies has been utter shit. Even fucking Zero Dark Thirty was just an indictment of fucking Bush for using waterboarding. That's what you did. And you only put it out because it's a fucking election year and you're trying to get Obama, the dear leader, reelected. So shut the fuck up horrible documentary to our lighter fare I'm going to play it and I hope it's what I'm about to read that's all I'm going to say
First opened our doors since 1926. Since 1978, for 60 years, for 75 years, for over 80 years, in 90 years, over 100 years, nationwide has been on your side. Restaurants have always been there for you. Nissan has been with you through thick and thin. We will do what we've always done: take care of people. We're people. 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 Family. 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 Families. 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 Even now. Especially now. Especially now. Right now. Now more than ever. More than ever. Today. More than ever. Today. More than ever. In times like this. At times like these. During these difficult times. In these troubled times. Challenging times. Trying times. In these times of uncertainty. During this time of great uncertainty. During these uncertain times. During these uncertain times. In uncertain times. In uncertain times. Uncertain times. Unprecedented times. Unprecedented times. Unprecedented times. This unprecedented moment in our history. This time of social distancing. While things have slowed down. As we turn more inside. While the doors may be closed. While the distance between us has gotten bigger, the more we stay apart, we still find ways to stay close, even when we're apart. Even if we can't stand closer than six feet, we can all stay connected to work, school, and most importantly, to each other. There's still ways to touch each other, all without leaving the comfort and safety of your home. Without leaving the safety of your home, from home, from home, your home, at home, 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 home. That's the key. Buick and GMC. Are here to help. Con Edison is here to help. Here to help. Our teams are here. We are here. We're here. We're here. Here for you. Here for you. We're here for you. We're here for you. We are here for you. We're here for you. We are here for you. We'll be here for you. Runnings is here for you. We're still here for you. We're with you. We're part of your community. So you can trust us. You can count on us. And we'll get through this together. 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 I saw this and I just laughed my fucking ass off. So here's the article, and yeah, I'm gonna put piano music in the background because that's all we're fucking seeing. If you're watching as much TV as this editor has, then you are more than familiar with COVID branding that's happening at commercials for companies across the board: car insurance, pizza, food in general, grocery stores. You name it. There's a sappy COVID commercial out there, and hey, we get it. If they weren't going this route, it might be, seem tone deaf, but enough's enough. Especially when you figured out the recipe and are starting to mock the crap out of it. This thread is great from Never Tweet at LOL Never Tweet. 
In quotes, sad piano music. That's why I'm playing it. In these uncertain times, it's important to remember that Twitter will be here for you during these challenging times, and is still a garbage dump amid these difficult times. Hashtag garbage together. Hashtag troubling times. In quotes, more sad piano music. During these uneasy times, it's important to remember that the the Soros is here for marketers during these precarious times as they write their somber ads during these anxious times. Hashtags brands together apart or something. Even more sadder music. In these trying times, it's important to remember that we are lucky enough to be open during these troubling times and have shit to sell. And every commercial now sounds like this during these challenging times. Hashtag brand strong. Sadder, sadder piano music. In these challenging times, it's important to remember we fucking get it. Sad sitar music. In these difficult times, it's important to remember the things we share together apart and stuff during these challenging times, like festive holidays, like today and dude stop bogarting that shit. Hashtag troubling times. Hashtag bogarting that shit. Sadder, sadder sitar music. In these uncertain times, it's important to remember to change up your ads or else people will start tuning them out during these times of uncertainty. Hashtag uncertain times. Hashtag times of uncertainty. Hashtag brand strong. Hashtag together and sell shit. Sadder, sadder piano music. In these challenging times, it's important to remember to listen to celebs during these difficult times and sniff celeb taints amid these uncertain times. Hashtag celeb together. Hashtag sniff celeb taints. I almost made it, but the hashtag sniff slept tanks is just too fucking funny. Grunt Doc put out the money, or the sound bite I played, and the article finishes, please in the name of all that's holy, make it stop. Sell us cars, sell us pizza, sell us insurance, sell us crap we really don't need. You don't have to sell us on the notion that we have to stay home, or that we should wash our freaking hands, or that we better keep social distancing. We get it. Go back to the annoying commercials and leave meaningful quips to greeting cards. Thank you, Twitchy staff. And it's so fucking true. I mean, I was just talking about the other day to the wife, like, man, they rolled this shit out quick, man. It was like week two when we start having, hi, I'm the bitch lick from fucking Toyota. And I'm like, I'm not buying a fucking car right now. And why is bitch Nick doing it in her house? Seriously. Then there's our next funny, de Blasio social distancing tip line flooded with penis photos, Hitler memes. <laughs> Mayor Bill de Blasio critics let him know how they really feel about him ordering New Yorkers to snitch on each other for violating social distancing rule. By flooding his new tip line with crank complaints included dick pics and people flipping the bird. The post 
has learned. Photos of extended middle fingers, the mayor dropping the Staten Island groundhog, and new coverage of him going to the gym have all been texted to a special tip line that de Blasio announced Saturday, according to a screenshot posted on Twitter. One user sent the message, We will fight this tyrannical overreach to the service and got an automated message that in part said, Hello, and thank you for texting NYC311. Fuck you, replied Morgan L. Schmidt 1, along with a meme showing Adolf Hitler and the words to those turning in your neighborhood and local businesses, You did the right thing. Start flooding their reporting text pic- numbers with this pic, the tweet added. Other profane messages, including a photo of a bowl of gummy candies in the shape of a dick. <laughs> and a sign saying, eat a bag of dicks. Thank you! My favorite line. It's not immediately clear whether any of the posters actually lived in New York City. There's one picture, literally, of him with a Hitler mustache. And we will make sure that enforcement comes right away. And they put him in a fucking Hitler outfit. And they put a swastika on his shoulder. A Twitter post comparing Mayor Bill de Blasio to Hitler in response to his call for New York to report social distancing violation. An NYPD source said that dick pic photos of real penises have also been texted to 311. And a caller phoned in a tip that Bill de Blasio was seen perform oral sex on someone in an alley behind 7-Eleven. <laughs> He looked at me and coofed in my direction, the caller said. According to a photo of the 311 operator computer screen provided to the post, coof is a newly coined term for coughing while infected with the coronavirus, according to Urban Dictionary. The inundation of off-color texts were so large, the city had to temporarily shut down the service. Oh, fucking love America. That's America right there. You overstep, you get dick pics. Then Biden decided to hold up a fucking white sign during a Twitter inter- uh, Twitter broadcast he did. The entire world went batshit crazy. It's so fucking funny. We demand to be taken seriously, somebody put on there. This is my son. Please help me find him. Where's Hunter? Text, where's Hunter, to Joe, 30330. Another one, missing person, Hunter Biden. Please share. One with, uh, an, oh, what the fuck, Sam Donaldson holding... A uh, picture, uh, uh, doing a newscast, and there's Biden, Hunter Biden's missing. Another one, hairy legs, roaches, look fat, you know why, or you know the thing, why, 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 which I didn't know why that was funny, but okay. Uh, another one, a picture of him with his sister and wife next to him. Another one, how do I open PDF? Somebody put one up. I've got hairy legs. That kid at the pool likes to run. <laughs> then they have the one that uh, Zach in uh, Tennessee sent me. Which sold out faster? Fucking Bernie Sanders or a roll of toilet paper? And last but not least, and you knew this was coming, Trump 2020 
Keep America great. And they even put a mega hat on him. So he deserves that shit because he's a piece of shit. So let's go to our This Is America. It is what I already talked about, but I'm going to put a, a sound bite in front of it. It is YouTube saying that they are going online, and it was the CEO of YouTube, and they're basically taking down anything that doesn't fit the party line on COVID. They're just removing shit for misinformation. And then we'll go into the article that I previously talked about, which is how huge companies sucked up that the uh, small business loans. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. Look what I'm whipping now. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. It's time for the last soundbite. Like the media say when they. This is America in 2019. Streaming video, of course, uh, is up across the board from Netflix to Hulu, Disney Plus, and all the rest. YouTube is seeing a big spike in views of news videos. This Bloomberg headline citing a thirst for virus updates. Uh, there are a lot of, uh, of facets to YouTube. Mis and disinformation is a problem on that platform as well. I spoke with YouTube CEO Susan Wojcicki uh, for her first interview since the pandemic really started to spread worldwide about the changes that YouTube has made to address the surge in viewership. We've served billions of impressions um, across our network that come from all the different public health organizations uh, and made sure that people understand um, what are the resources. I never thought we'd have so many videos of hand washing, for example, um, but we've, we, uh, you know, that's just one example, but we've served uh, so many different areas to make sure that users are getting the right information. Um, we've actually seen a 75% increase in the um, um, news coming from authoritative sources since the beginning of 2020. Um, so we've seen a, a lot of demand there. Um, but then we also. What does that mean? That means an increase in, in video views for those? Yeah. And so we talk about that as raising authoritative information. Um, but then we also talk about um, removing information that is problematic. You know, of course, anything that is medically unsubstantiated to so people saying, like, take vitamin C, um, you know, um, take turmeric, like, those are all will cure you. Um, those are the examples of things that would be a violation of our policy. Um, anything that would go against World Health Organization recommendations would be a violation of our policy. And so remove is another really important part of our policy. So you're not just putting the truth next to the lie. You're taking the lie down. That's a pretty aggressive approach. Well, uh, I mean, we do we do remove, um, you know, across um, YouTube in non-pandemic times um, information that is a violation of our policy. And we've had community guidelines since the very beginning of YouTube. And we've always um, anything that is a violation of our policy, we do remove it. Um, and what was really unique about um, about this was just how fast moving the COVID-19 crisis was. And so we've had to make numerous policy changes all within a really short period of time to be able to make sure that we stayed abreast of the changes. So, um, for example, just recently there was um, a theory that um, 5G was causing coronavirus symptoms. Um, now, no um, established health organization says that 5G is the source of the issue. Um, and so that um, quickly, we quickly deemed that a violation of our policies uh, with um, COVID-19 and remove that content. Yeah, everyone's YouTube is different. Are there certain videos that basically everybody has seen because they are so important or they are from such authoritative sources? 
Well, we definitely saw a really high uh, click-through and all the different public health information that we made available. Um, but you know, this crisis has just moved so quickly. Um, I mean, I think that's what – it just the speed of it has taken away everyone's – breath um, in terms of how quickly we move from just having a few infections, right, to, um, you know, having large parts of the world being under quarantine. And, um, you know, we certainly have seen how our users have changed. So, you know, first starting with just really basic information about what was coronavirus, you know, then we really focused on the stay at home messages um, and got that. Um, and now, really interestingly, we're seeing a lot of users um, come to us and want to know about um, life under quarantine. Um, and so we see a lot of interest in things like um, exercise at home, like how do I fix my dishwasher? How do I fix my freezer? Um, how do I give myself a haircut um, when I'm in quarantine? And so we've definitely seen an evolution across our platform in um, all these different ways. Do you think this crisis has caused YouTube to change in ways that will be long term? Well, I mean, I certainly have seen changes. I, I think in many ways we've seen an acceleration of our digital lives. Um, I mean, we used, we used to see movies, science fiction movies, where we would talk about kids going to school in the future where they would be, you know, on screens and they would be going to a school that wasn't really in their neighborhood. And, and that seemed like science fiction. And now we have... Um, all of our kids are, you know, so many of them are, are have some kind of digital school program now because um, schools are closed, sadly. And so that is certainly an acceleration. Um, and, you know, I think with public health, um, you know, we probably would have gotten there in a couple of years. Um, but certainly this has been, been a big acceleration of realizing the important need of working with established public health organizations to get the right information online to users. And we're seeing that opportunity. You can hear my extended conversation with YouTube CEO Susan Wojcicki uh, at the Reliable Sources podcast uh, through Apple, through Spotify, wherever you find your podcasts. Uh, we have a full conversation about misinformation, the upsides of YouTube, the future of YouTube, and all the rest. And, um, yeah, I think it was irresponsible. So, you know, I tr it's hard to be honest sometimes. It's hard to, to be honest and, and say, oh, maybe I screwed up. And I knew that that was um, in the air, not because of the responses, but the responses brought me back to my own truth. I also threw in there poor Josh Brolin uh, having to buck to the fucking PC crowd for visiting his father. But the YouTube thing just doesn't surprise me. We are living in a time where uh, social media is the mainstream media. And any other opinions, you're going to be erased. Even worse than an election year. So, to the article uh, about the <clears throat> small business loans. Huge companies suck up hundreds of millions of stimulus cash meant for mom and pop shops. Huge publicly traded companies have already sucked up hundreds of millions of dollars for emergency funding PPPP program set aside for small businesses in the $2.2 trillion package. The PPP started out with nearly $350 billion and was intended to help small business survive mandatory shutdowns or business slowdowns during the coronavirus. But at least 75 companies, some of them with market values topping $100 million, have requested and received cash from the fund. In fact, the federal government has paid out more than $243 million of the total $349 billion to publicly traded companies. New research published by Morgan Stanley shows... The research shows that several of the companies have received aid, the market value well in excess of $100 million, including DMC Global, 
405 million, Wave Life Insurance 286 million, and Fiesta Restaurant Group 189 million. Fiesta, which employs more than 10,000 people according to its last reported annual number, received a PPP loan of 10 million. Morgan Stanley data showed CNBC reported at least 75 companies have received an aid were publicly traded and received a combined 300 million in low interest taxpayer backed loans according to the separate report published by the AP. The AP put the number even higher. At least 94 companies have disclosed receiving aid since the program opened April 3rd and they all have values of over 100 million dollars. That's just horrible. <laughs> But it pales in comparison to the latest thing. These are journalists. Now, the moment Trump said this, Ben Rhodes came running out saying why this is a bad idea and touting for Iran. And I promptly said, every time you open your fucking suck, I remember my friends who have been killed by IEDs that were supplied by Iran that were financed by you and Obama. You are a fucking piece of human shit. Go hide underneath a rock. I don't know if that tweet's still there. Probably got reported. Who knows? Donald Trump, I've instructed the United States Navy to shoot down and destroy any and all Iranian gunboats that they harass our ships at sea. <clears throat> this is a re- in response to recent IRGC boats harassing U.S. naval vessels. Jennifer Jacobs, you will act Against Iran, Trump says, after armed Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps boats conducted what the U.S. Navy considered dangerous and harassing approaches on U.S. ships. Hugh Hewitt, this is a serious warning. It should be taken serious by RGC. Lucas Thomason, last week, the U.S. Navy sent warships to northern Persian Gulf to train for the first time in months, not far from Iran. U.S. Army Apache gunships also took part. Oliver Knox, there was a fairly significant situation back on April 15th. More background here. Zied Zafar Mahari. So you are deliberately and foolishly putting your Navy in harm's way, remembering they are 7,592 miles away from their homeland, fishing in troubled waters, also dozens of U.S. military bases in the region, all within striking distance of Iran ballistic missiles. Wake up! But then American journalists get a hold of it. Aaron Rupar. Shoot down the boats with invisible planes. Andrew Feinberg. How, pray tell, does one shoot down a boat? Josh, wash your elbow, Gernstein. Setting aside the gravity of this for a moment, I am no military expert, but how do you shoot down a gunboat? Are there flying gunboats in service? Rick Wilson. Oh, Admiral Bone Spurs. And Joe Lockhart. That would be illegal order based on mere harassment, and I'm sure no naval officer would carry it out unless there's clear and present danger to the ship and sailors. It does show how desperate Donald Trump is to distract from the pandemic. Just like immigration. He tweets, These three individuals died at home during a time when very limited testing was available only through the CDC testing criteria set by the CDC at the time restricted testing only individuals with known travel history who sought medical care for specific symptoms. As the medical examiner continues to carefully investigate death throughout this country, we anticipate additional deaths from COVID-19 will be identified. It was somehow supposed to be an own But what it actually made me research is they're starting to find people died in early March and February. And exactly what we said, that this virus was here a lot sooner than we thought it was. But those are journalists. When Obama talked about action, if you criticized it, you were un-American, 
Nazi piece of shit. Trump, who shouldn't tweet this kind of shit, because it kind of ruins the point of having a military strategy. If you're telling the other military what your strategy is, they mock the commander-in-chief. This is all that shit we talked about for fucking eight years of respect the office of the President of the United States. And these are our journalists. These are journalists. They're, they're not supposed to be on a side, right? Yeah. What was I thinking? <clears throat> so, this wraps up another episode of Flyover Politics Podcast. Please feel free to share with your family and friends. Send comments to F-O-P-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. FOP Podcast gmail.com. Get the show on SoundCloud, Pocket Static, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, iTunes, Blueberry, Stitcher, and Pocket Cast. Remember to check out the Facebook page at FOP Podcast and the Twitter page at FOP Tony Reed. Our next podcast will be 27 April, year of our Lord, 2020. Gonna try to get one by Monday. If not, it'll be Tuesday on the 28th. <clears throat> Until then, um, I have a quick story to say. There was a thing I did all a long time ago that I kind of regretted. A young lady asked me to the prom, and I blew her blew her off at the very last minute. It was about two weeks out <clears throat> because my friends wanted to go do something else. I wasn't a prom guy. For some reason, that sat with me for years. That that was pretty fucked up. Maybe it's because I've been married to somebody for three three years that things like that are just rude, and I I shouldn't have done it. The person asked me. It took a lot of courage to do that. A courage I didn't have because I didn't ask anybody at the prom because I was a gutless worm who'd been dumped twice in a row from my long-time girlfriend and a short-time girlfriend. So <clears throat> it always bothered me, and one of the things I picked up from combat was to do nice things. It was reverse Billy Madison. Instead of having your, suicide or your assassination list, have a, th- a list of things you need to make right. And that was one of them. So 35 years later, which is a lifetime, I tracked this person down, and I sent them a message, and they thanked me, but said it was good. You didn't do anything wrong. It's all good. I ended up going with a friend. It all worked out, but thank you for the apology. With a smiley face, she probably was a little taken back, because she probably didn't remember me, and I had to go through a whole bunch of freaking hoops to find out what her name was, because I don't have my yearbooks. I just remember she sat next to me and asked me. So... Why did I put that out? No, it's not a look at me, play sad music, hashtag strong. No. Reach out to somebody. During these pandemics and these lockdowns and stuff, people are lonely. There's a lot of people out there by themselves. And if you've thought of somebody <clears throat> from your past or somebody you hasn't talked to in a long time, call them. Send them a messenger, a tweet, a text, a fucking Snapchat, whatever the fuck you use. Reach out to that person and say, hey, how you doing? It might make their day. I know I've gotten some emails, a couple messages, a few phone calls from people I haven't talked to in a long time, and it did brighten up my day. You know, you hit pause on whatever the fuck you're trying to watch that you really don't want to watch, but you got to find something to watch, and you talk to another person for just a little bit. So do that. That's your homework assignment until Monday. Reach out to somebody you haven't talked to in a while. Say, hey, how you doing? And make their day. Make sure, once again, enjoy this time with your family. Disconnect every once in a while and spend some time with your kids, your wife, your significant other, your dog. Don't get locked into Call of Warfare 75 and piss away all the time you can spend with the other your other people in your life. And tune in Monday for our next show. As always, thanks for listening. Take care.
to live, don't it chill, but a lonely campaign's So I guess I'll head back to the house and take a bath in bleach Quarantine, quarantine, drinking whiskey like vaccine Waving at the neighbors, social distancing Quarantine, quarantine, wearing lights all like sunscreen Quarantine, quarantine, oh lonesome quarantine Some fresh deer meat But I hope your family's well Hope them hands are clean Any chance that you might have An extra AR-15 Quarantine, quarantine Drinking whiskey like vaccine Waving at the neighbors Social distancing Quarantine, quarantine Wearing lights all like sunscreen Quarantine, quarantine some quarantine Shout out to the heroes fighting this disease It's time to come together now It's one society Stop, 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 stop. I meant that in like a metaphorical sense, not a literal sense, because if we came together, that would be the antithesis of what quarantine means. But good thing we have FaceTime because we can hang out and make dumb songs like this. And shout out to all the healthcare workers out there. And, and Tim, I really like that chorus. Let's hit that one more time. Quarantine, quarantine, drinking whiskey like vaccine, waving at the neighbors, social distancing. Quarantine, quarantine, wearing lights all like 